Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 103, Revisiting Starcrossed. <laughs> now all I have to do is figure out who I am, where I am, and why all these young women are staring at me as if I were Tom Cruise. Donna. Of course, this is Lawrence. Jerry, we have to talk. It's a matter of life and death. Jamie Lee, I don't think it's a good idea for you to be in my rooms. I believe our love will conquer all, even Daddy. They got married. June 20th, 1972. Nice little intimate shotgun wedding, 12-gauge, I think it was. That's what you're here for, is to see that those two don't ruin both their lives. Of course, there's not much more that could go wrong with Professor Bryant. We're going to get you out of this one quick this time. Uh, Ziggy figures a 99.5% chance I don't want out you'll of this be one able quick. to leap when... What? I'm here to get a second chance. <laughs> Before I even get a first one. You want to let me in on the joke? Donna Elise is here. <clears throat> That's not funny, Sam. But true. Don't you see, Al? I'm here to get Donna and I a second chance. You're here to see that Guinevere there doesn't make the biggest mistake of her life. How do you know that? I told you because Ziggy's got a computer down to the decimal point. I don't give a damn what a point. computer says. We're talking about the woman I love in my future. I'm here. She's here. We've got a second chance. And no one's going to stop me from taking it. Not even you. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. I'm Alison Pregler. And I'm Matt Dale. Today we are talking about the season one episode, Starcrossed. This is the second of our, I guess we're calling this revisiting, revisiting Starcrossed. Mm. Isn't that what we did with Genesis? Yeah, I believe so. And it was a long time ago. Yeah, it seems like we're just... Remember when we just used to talk about episodes of Quantum Leap? <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I like that we have all sorts of things to do and talk about, though. It's great. It doesn't feel like yeah. we're just doing the same thing all the time and got plenty of material and great friends to talk to. And it's good because at this rate, we might 
like catch up with ourselves mid season three in about seventeen, eighteen years. <laughs> <laughs> Look forward to it, guys. <laughs> we'll be like retiring. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to be uh doing the new show. Uh, between then too exactly we'll have like three seasons under our belt of the new show we still won't be through the original series again (laughs) be like it's playing again seymour next month maybe (laughs) (laughs) season two coming soon i don't even remember what's happened in the show at this point (laughs) at that point we're gonna have listeners that are gonna be like what show are they talking about this doesn't have ben in it (laughs) i He'll be the new, like like there'll be new fans versus old fans and exactly. Like, Ooh, the old show is old. <laughs> My grandpa told me about the Quantum Leap podcast when he was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Starcrossed, huh? Yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it really is funny, uh, just how much I was able to unpack out of this episode. I'm so happy that we're going back and doing this because. Boy, howdy, I think we have a lot to talk about today. But before we get started, I also want to let everybody know that uh, we will be bringing you an interview. I did an interview with QL editor Michael Stern. Michael worked on Quantum Leap during seasons four and five, and Hayden helped arrange this. Michael told me all about editing the show together, the process of doing it, what editors do generally, and he just had a ton of great stories. It was a ton of fun talking to him, and you will be hearing that later in the show after the break, so stay tuned for that as well. Nice. Ooh, good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Michael was great. So, yeah, you guys don't want to miss that, but uh, I, I don't know where to begin with Starcrossed. I guess we'll we'll start where we always do, uh, first impressions. Allison, what did you think of Starcrossed, revisiting Starcrossed? Uh, this is this was great to revisit. Uh, it's it's great to compare uh, with the other Donna episode that we talked about. <laughs> and first of all, I do want to say I listened back to that podcast we did on Leap Back, and I felt like I came off a lot meaner than I should have. <laughs> <laughs> the, the frying pan gag is in that one. That's one of my the favorite fr- bits of the podcast of all time. Sam, <laughs> get you with a frying pan. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I don't want to go back to Donna. I don't. <laughs> Uh, I hate my wife. I'd rather not go back to that. She'll hit me with a frying pan. <laughs> Sam, you should have leaped home years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Laugh track. <laughs> Watching too many Tim Allen yeah. movies, I think. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> Terry Hatcher doesn't seem like a frying pan lady No This This is the episode that shows um, What Donna could have been as a character I think this is a great (laughs) episode And uh, I really really liked her in this one So yeah good episode Okay how about you Matt Yeah this is a fun episode This is one of the ones that I love to come back to Time and time again I'm glad I didn't see it on the first run Because I do think it's a really odd episode To jump straight into after the pilots but uh but aside from the the weird sequencing yeah it's a it's a great one very easy watch you're reading my notes because (laughs) i literally wrote down sort of an odd choice for a first episode yeah yeah that was my thoughts too it's so early to jump into a, a personal history thing when we really don't know sam that well at all yeah well i mean yeah. that yeah that I, I think that hmm, yeah we'll get right into that I, 
my my whole thing with this, I tried to figure out why would they do it this way? Because I think for any other show, this would have been like a mid-season finale because you're getting so deep into one aspect of a character's life that's really important to them. That's, you know, like a pivotal moment. Mm. But here they're doing it right out of the gate. And I'm thinking they sort of had to serve two masters with this episode because Quantum Leap is just two guys in different situations every week. So you can either lean into the premise aspect of it. Okay. Sam has got to solve somebody's problem, or you can try to establish a connection to the character before you really get rolling. And how else are you going to do it with quantum leap? It's not like you see him in an everyday work environment. It's not like you see a home life. All you see is the situations he's leaped into. So I, I think that they were trying to figure out how do we make people like Sam right off the bat? So they went right for an episode that, that by all rights should have been a later episode, in my opinion. Well, the way that they produced it, and Matt knows this, uh, it wasn't the first one that they intended or that they filmed to air after the pilot. Really? Yeah, it was, it was meant to be uh, Double Identity was the, the first one after the pilot. Do we have any idea why they switched it? They thought it would be too confusing with the double leaps at the end um, yes. to make people think it was always going to be like two in one because they kind of did the same thing in the pilot. Mm. Gotcha. Okay. All right. That makes sense. That makes sense. And it, was it like the third producer? I'm, I'm asking this for a specific reason. Do, do we know where it was in the production order? Like, Yes. It, um, so it was uh, Double Identity, then Right Hand of God, then Starcrossed. Oh. So this was their fourth episode then, technically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. then why did it have such weird, dumb writing in places? Because it's season one. They don't know. <laughs> Look, season yeah. one of any show, you don't know the characters. The writers don't know the characters. You're going to get wonky stuff. And I think yeah. that's great. It's great when you jump back and you're like, why? This is something that Sam wouldn't do later. Like, Sam <laughs> smokes in this episode. You're like, Sam wouldn't just be smoking casually in, like, the later episodes. <laughs> Like, why are the, his characters acting like this? Sam says the word horny, and I feel like he would have been too prudish to, to even repeat horny later on. I know, it's a funny <laughs> moment, but... <laughs> they liked using the word horny in the script. I think it was uh, featured at least four times in dialogue. I told her that her perfume made me horny, and then her lips made me even hornier. I get the idea. Look, Oscar, horny isn't romantic. Far out, man. You think she wrote this because she was horny? Right on. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Far out. It was like the first line. <laughs> what I did notice is that um, when Genesis ended, they were really leaning into the GTFW aspect of it. And this show picks up right where that left off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The trouble with quantum leaping is that just about the time I start to enjoy being a hero... The big guy with the remote control switches channels on me. Yeah, he even says, like, I got connections later in the episode, like, looking up, like, he's got an in with God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A little bit of hubris there, right? <laughs> I couldn't help but think of you, Matt, um, because this is the first time that I've seen these episodes as they originally aired. I've only seen syndicated versions with the saga cells attached. Mm -hmm. So you had um, double narration from Sam in this one. I think it gets more standardized. He's talking about being um, a time-traveling Lone Ranger. And I said to myself, I wonder if Matt knew what the Lone Ranger was before that dumb Johnny well, Depp movie. Sir? <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, well, yes. I mean, I don't <laughs> think I've ever seen any Lone Ranger, but it's like it's one of those cultural things that yeah, you you don't need to be American and you don't need to have seen it. And or I think didn't it start off as a radio show? Lone yes, so seen it or heard it. But yeah, so yeah, I know that stuff. Well, it's one of those things that gets referenced a lot too. If you watch a lot of TV, you've heard it referenced. This is amazing, though, Chris. You're talking about the Lone Ranger stuff like it's like it's new to you. Whereas, like for those of us that grew up with the, or, or not grew up, but we've been relying on the DVDs for so many years that uh, Lone Ranger with Al as my Tonto, and I don't even need a mask. A sort of time traveling Lone Ranger with Al as my Tonto, and I don't even need a mask. Yeah, like me and Allison have seen that a million times. <laughs> I'm sure you have. It's new to me. They had to do like extra narration at the beginning of this too because it was right after the pilots they're like hey listen up guys (laughs) this is really complicated (laughs) we're gonna try and explain it to you it's a little confusing and then they go into the intro and then they're like hey we're back from the intro listen i know this is still confusing so (laughs) here's what's going on everyone I feel like they, they had to do that because um, like one person in the house watched it last week and they're like, this show is really cool. It's really interesting. Let me bring everybody to watch it this week. Come on. You have to see this show. I saw Quantum Leap. And they're all like going, what the hell is this? So I think that maybe they were just hedging for that. Before they thought to do the saga cell, they're like, how the hell do we get people to understand what this show is? And I think it was it was great once they figured out they're like okay let's just have this little synopsis at the beginning that that's gonna have to be good enough instead of like constantly like sam sort of repeating what was going on in the previous episode especially when you go into like reruns like they're not always gonna run one into the other so you're still kind of figuring things out and if you still don't get it after the three intros then they have that (laughs) wonderful montage in the middle of the episode (laughs) Where you see them talking, and then at the end, Donna's like, and then he could just travel through time, or whatever it is. Get it? (laughs) Okay, now we understand. That's three and a half explanations in one episode. We're good. We're good now, people. But yeah, Chris, to your point, though, it, it does seem like they made a conscious decision here, instead of going down the anthology route that Quantum Leap is... Um, to say no, look, let's let's keep leading into the Sam story, even though that entire last leap for the last twenty minutes of the pilot is basically all about Sam being able to speak to his dad. Um, they then carry that on through this, so it does feel like for the pilot plus Starcrossed. Oh, this is going to be all about Sam getting to uh, experience bits of his own life and and you know touch bits of his own life and make alterations. Oh no, okay, we're going to just like leave that after Starcrossed and not really reference that again mm. for a couple more seasons. I mean, I, I think they made the smart decision to try and give personal stakes for Sam most of the time, even if the leap didn't pertain to him specifically. He does have more personal things with Donna in this episode, but there would be other episodes like uh, Kamikaze Kid where it was like, this doesn't necessarily pertain to his life, but... It meant something to him because of his sister. So they tried to have something personal going on. So you didn't just feel like, well, I don't really care about what's going on with these characters. You care about Sam. You know who Sam is. So even if you're not into the story, you care about his stakes in it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I think that they also did a masterful job of establishing Sam and Al as like buddies, as like old friends, because you didn't have that dumb data dump that you would have gotten in any other show where Sam is saying, you remember Donna Alisi, the woman I almost Mm -hmm. married? (laughs) He does ask Donna's dad, do you remember Donna? (laughs) (laughs) 
what I love is like when Sam mentions Donna to Al, Al obviously knows who he's talking about, what he's talking about. There is no need to explain. And the, the most acknowledgement you get from Al is him seeing her even 20 years younger or however younger she was, you know, to him and saying, oh my God, it is her. Clearly they know each other. Like, I love the reaction when Sam tells him about that. Like, with, that's not funny. Like, you can tell there's some history there, the way that they play off each other, that these are characters that have known each other for a long time. They know, mm. like, he knows what happened in the past. He knows Donna in some way. Uh, and, and just immediately, this is the first episode since the pilot. You just know that Sam and Al have just known each other for a long time. They have all this history. Yeah, it was it was really refreshing to see that um, right off the bat because it's one of the parts of this episode that made it feel the most lived in. And if you're a longtime fan, it was it was a treat to just see an aspect of their relationship that is long established. Yeah, well, I mean, Al goes to bat for him in this episode. Like he like just goes the extra mile. Like he gets fired for Sam in this episode to try and help him out. Yeah. yeah um, and yeah, that gets into a whole nother can of worms of back at the project. I want to talk <laughs> about that, but let's just uh, maybe recount some of the aspects of the lore of Sam's personal history that we uh, learned in this one, because we don't really get to touch on it much after this. Um, he was set to be married June 5th at the old mission chapel, whatever the hell that is. And <laughs> he met Donna when she was 30, he said, just coming off the Starbright project. Yeah. Is this the first reference to Starbright? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. I'm trying to remember if they mentioned it in the pilot, but uh, I think maybe we were just talking about it when we were doing the pilot show. I think we, we and some other fans kind of retrofit the, uh, the, the little blue LED stars uh, in the pilot That's right. as being maybe left over. Yeah, well, and Al's wearing that in this episode, too. He's wearing one of the pins. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the back at the project stuff I thought was really intriguing and confusing. Um we get <laughs> <laughs> we get the first really? the first mention of the committee I think here. Did they mention again in the pilot I don't remember if they if, if they mentioned the committee. But we we hear of, of Weitzman, which I guess is the most famous committee member. Weitzman? Short fat guy in knickers. Tall skinny guy with a stovepipe hat. Got a Lincoln fixation. Yeah, the one with the Lincoln fixation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, this is what I was talking about with dumb writing. Like, throwaway lines, because when Al mentions the committee and he mentions Weitzman, Sam says, short fat guy with knickers? Like, like <laughs> who is on this committee? Is he wearing, like, a Tory wig? <laughs> it's like, <what's- laughs> I love that, like, everyone has some insane descriptor back at the project. Like... <laughs> <laughs> it's so good but it's so hard not to picture them like that now like yeah he, he he could have a lincoln fixation that just means he's you know a bit of a fan a bit interested but as soon as he says that right that's it now anytime you imagine weitzman he's actually got the hat and the beard everything going on it's <laughs> maybe it's like... like a future version of that it's not so literal he doesn't literally look like lincoln it's just sort of that comparison he's wearing some sort of future stovepipe hat. it's got it's got cutouts <laughs> in the brim <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they mentioned weitzman they mentioned bartlett um and i do believe this is the first uh, mention of the committee and that that there's some sort of person in charge of things, and uh, Weitzman's trying to get Sam declared non compass mentis. And uh, I did notice 
in this episode, uh, it changes how the project uh, is funded because it was a privately funded thing before and then it becomes government after this episode. Well, okay. Now you're getting to another question I had because I believe this is the first and last time I've ever heard this on the show. He said that Weitzman went to the foundation. If I even try, they're going to pull the plug and they're not kidding. Weitzman is at the foundation right now arguing for the authority to do it. So I guess the committee runs the project, but the foundation runs the committee? And have we ever heard of the foundation any time after this? It, that That's one that just really jumped out at me. I don't know. I guess I thought that was just a location that they were at, but I don't know. I I actually missed that. Huh. And I was counting on you, Matt, to have a chapter and verse say the foundation members <laughs> <Wow>. were. <laughs> I guess I just kind of assumed that's where the committee convened or something. Weitzman is at the foundation right now arguing for the authority to do it. So, yeah, is the foundation... a place or a group of people it could be either i took it as like a like a governing body that directs the committee like the committee's got to be answerable to somebody too now allison you see the committee as a private entity in this yeah i believe like it changes like because the project was not government funded until after this episode so it seems like something was changed hmm Am I am I wrong on that? I feel like I heard that somewhere or something. I didn't get any indication as to whether or not it was privately funded in this episode. I just assume that it's a government project because in the show it's a government project. I know that they're still establishing things here though, so it's not something that um that I noticed in the episode. In Right Hand of God, Al talks about them having had to raise money for the imaging chamber. So I I never really thought about it that much, but I guess, yeah, it's maybe maybe both. Maybe they needed to get money together in order to do some early work and prove the theories and then get government funding to actually do the the big stuff. I, yeah. Yeah, they do talk about, like, I mean, it's in the saga cell, like, it was Sam was going to lose funding and that's why he took the, the leap. But, I mean, it could have been government funding, could have been... Other funding, clearly Al was doing at some sort of event that seemed to be, maybe he was schmoozing for funding or something at the beginning of the of the pilot. I don't know. Very nebulous. What's really going on? Well, I think it makes sense that if they're going to have to have a mix of private and public funds, um, just like, like what Matt just said, I think is a perfect combination of the two of them. So, yeah, it's just very interesting because I don't think that I've ever recalled hearing anything about a foundation and I know that uh, it becomes a non-entity uh, just like the committee does after this. Yeah, it would so. have been interesting if they'd had more about the committee. I mean, I guess that's what was going on at uh, in Honeymoon Express, right? That's what the committee was? I, I believe so. That's the yeah, – I know we're, we're, we're jumping all over the timeline here. We're already, you know, future speculating as well. But um, I always assume that he was talking to the committee in Honeymoon Express. Yeah, that seemed to be what that was. Um, it, it's a shame that it never really seemed like it, it was much of a thing. There was just like this and that, and that's basically it. And they could have been great antagonists back at the project. Another year, another or another decade, another project. But we we know this is not a new spoiler. Um, we know that in the new series or in the new pilots, uh, one of Magic's roles is to liaise with the Pentagon. That was what came out in the character profile 
first off, so the Pentagon seems to be overseeing things in the the new series. Yeah, I think they'll do more with that kind of thing, for sure. Hmm. Again, I don't want boring Pentagon talks. <laughs> too much boring Pentagon talks. But I think this could be great. It could be great to have sort of these people in charge that you got to kind of appease and and bow to their whims sometimes, even they don't really know what they're talking about, talking out of their asses. <laughs> non compassmento not our Sam. Yeah. He's compassmentos all the way, baby. But I mean, so. I guess you can't you can't blame Weitzman for thinking this, right? Like he jumped in it like for all that all that they know is that this guy jumped into this accelerator without asking anyone's permission, went back in time. You just have Al's word what's going on, trying to change history. Sam does kind of seem crazy. Yeah. Or Sam's not even there. Sam is Sam is catatonic as far, as far as they're concerned. He's just this husk in the waiting room, I guess. Yeah, like Sam shouldn't be in charge of anything. He's stuck back in time now, so it's like, well, yeah, he can't be running this project non compass mentis. I'm going to take over this whole thing. Well, at, at this point, isn't Doctor Brian in the waiting room? Admittedly, looking like Sam. So yeah, Doctor Brian's in the waiting room, so Sam's not there. This is just Chris with his own dumb body mind theories. <laughs> so some horny, some horny old guy looks like Sam is saying, "Where's my pipe?" Where's my pipe? I want to smoke my pipe and look at young ladies. To which Al is saying, right on. <laughs> yeah, if I guess if Weitzman doesn't know what's going on, he might think that's Sam in there. But the committee knows how the project works, right? I mean, like, they, they're they trying to declare Sam, Sam non-compass mentis because he's breaking all the rules back in the 70s. True. All right. Yeah, so hang on. So yeah, is he non-compass mentis because they believe he's back in the 70s and, yeah, he's breaking the rules that he agreed to or he created or is he non-compass mentors because he sat in the waiting room saying no no my name is dr bryant and like yes sam yes sam of course you are i i feel like in some ways they're kind of last week he said he was a baseball player god knows what's going on (laughs) that's true what's going on for them in some ways i mean sam should he be running the project anyway he doesn't remember anything His mind is gone. <laughs> he can't. He can't be the director of this project, isn't that why um, Al's in charge while he's gone? Basically, I would say so. Yeah. What else are they going to do? Even if Sam remembered everything about the project, there's not anything he could do to run it from his current situation. So yeah. Regardless, it, it's an unworkable thing and i guess it just points out that they never expected to lose him in time he was always expected to leap out and come back leap out and come back so yeah i always found that kind of interesting like the structure the hierarchy of the project once sam is gone i don't think they ever really establish exactly what everyone's positions were i always kind of saw al as the the co-director with him so he's got to kind of take over everything because clearly he seems to be in charge when Sam's gone, but there had to have been a lot of scrambling, like figuring out what to do. Oh, for sure. And um, Al, being ex-military, could probably marshal the resources and figure out how to run how to run this thing. I always, and I guess maybe I get this cue from Ashley's books, and I think maybe it was Prelude. I always saw Al's role as like the magic role, being the liaison yeah. between the military and the government, and getting the funding because he knows like the ins and the outs of that world, where Sam doesn't. So that's why he's such an asset um, to the project for I think just for that reason and then probably thrust into a leadership role, more administrative role, once Sam went missing or once Sam was lost in time. Why do the military care about a time travel project anyway? Eh, probably for weapons or something. <laughs> <laughs> 
sorry, we're going we're going way off topic here, but I just it just hit me. I'm sure. I'm sure it's explained in Prelude or something. Are you kidding? Uh, Why wouldn't the military be interested in time travel? You can rule the world if you actually can crack time travel. You could learn a bunch of military secrets or whatever. I love the idea that, like, they want to do that, but then, like, Sam, like, he wouldn't want to be using his technology for war and espionage and all this other stuff. And that's what the committee wants to do in Honeymoon Express. They want him to get information on the U-2 mission true, or whatever. True, and, like, true, Sam's true. like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to go do this thing now. <laughs> Scientists have always been pawned to the military. <laughs> you know you know the line, Matt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think of the next line, though. That was what was bugging me. Uh, Starfleet has kept the peace for a hundred years. Oh, I cannot and will I not subscribe. I will not subscribe to your... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're getting our Carol Marcus on. Anyway, um... <laughs> I think one thing we can agree on about the project, uh, very unprofessional. Extremely unprofessional. Oh, my There's God. some stuff going on. They're all banging each other. <laughs> like any other workplace environment, casual sex and blackmail. Because that's how you do. <laughs> they have got a photocopier there that has seen more butts than paper. <laughs> clearly. <laughs> so Al, like, Al gets fired for helping Sam out. And then they go to some party or something. And then Tina like sleeps with Weitzman so they can blackmail him. Oh. Weitzman. You know Tina? Yeah. Weitzman knows her too. You set Tina up with Weitzman and then blackmailed him? Yeah. That unscrupulous, but effective. Not clear which Tina it is at this point either, because the only Tina they've mentioned prior to this is the one in the pilot. Unless, like, he's on to the second Tina by this point. I don't know. We still don't know. I mean, she's only named Tina in the end credits. I prefer to think that She's got a different name in the pilot. It's too confusing. No, he said in, in the pilot, doesn't he say I should have stayed in bed with Tina or something? He does name her. He does name a oh. Tina. And they do oh, they yes, do credit true. that tall woman in the desert as Tina. Yes. But I guess like it must be the second one because she knows about project stuff at least, unless he's just like, hey, sleep with this guy. Yeah. <laughs> and what is Hal, a pimp? I'm so confused I love that Al like is willing to like seduce or have other people seduce people at the project and he's like no no I wouldn't do any I would have gotten with Bartlett's wife but not Whitesmith's (laughs) wife <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, Tina didn't maybe even have to sleep with him. She could have just put him into some compromising position and gotten like a photograph. Yeah, something blackmailable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something like even just being out on a date could be actionable, you know, if you're talking about like divorce or whatever mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. infidelity. So it's not necessarily that she slept with him, but they sure do hint at that. I guess you can interpret it how you want. If she didn't actually sleep with him, that has to be the tamest story that we hear about what's going on at the project at this point in this young series life. Because everyone seems to be sleeping with everyone else. If she didn't sleep with him, it's like, yeah, whatever. They better be throwing some of this in the new series. They better have the same unprofessionalism, just having parties all the time. Like, let's just go crazy with this project. And Ziggy, I'm sorry, Ziggy's like a dick. In this, and Ziggy, he, he stops printing uh, pornographic photos long enough to grass Sam up to the committee about the hieroglyphics and uh, and Al trying to give him information. It's just like, who's side are you on, Ziggy? Yeah. That scene where Al dresses up in that like <laughs> sack dress or something, and like he's I got a sash with like hieroglyphics on it, like he, that he thought this would work. He walks in like this. This is a normal, casual thing I would wear. <laughs> <laughs> to give Sam. 
a code in hieroglyphics. Uh, <laughs> but a scene, like it, it is a marvelous, marvelous scene, and I wouldn't be without it. But why he doesn't just walk in, considering that no one else can see the other half of the conversation, he could just walk in and say, "For." Oh, Sam, what do you mean Donna's just said that her father's in Washington? <laughs> when did she tell you that, Sam? Yeah, but instead he goes with this convoluted plan. This is like epitome of early season, they haven't figured stuff out yet scene. Um, <laughs> like all this stuff that happens here, you wouldn't see happen later. You wouldn't see Al wearing that later. You wouldn't see like they do the, the hologram effect, like he's grabbed by some unseen people and dragged out. Like I think later you would just see them as soon as they touched him. Exactly. They yeah. still have the old door, and but it's fascinating, and I love that like setup where they like put Dean Stockwell on some sort of like track to like <laughs> drag him <laughs> back into the door. I remember seeing that clip in opening credits so many times and be like, "Wow, what is that? Why is he like flying through the air? I can't <laughs> wait to see this episode." And then when I finally saw it, I was like, "Oh, oh, that's what happens." <laughs> okay, I thought he was on a gurney or something. It's like. It's very weird, but very cool. This was an evolution of the imaging chamber doors, Allison, because if you recall in the pilot, he opened it like a closet door almost and then mm-hmm. went behind it. This, they, they had it so that it slid together no, like, a, a, like a Star Trek yeah, door. Yeah, like a swishy door. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like a turbo lift door. So I thought that that was a really <laughs> neat effect. Maybe it was just a double door. Like with, it had two handles. He oh, only okay. had to open one side of it when he left the first time, <laughs> but they, they had two because they had multiple people. <laughs> they turned it into pocket doors since the last episode, right? Because now it, it retracts yeah. into the wall, comes back. But uh, had I missed it in the first scene? Because it wasn't until the scene that we just talked about, I noticed that Al didn't have a hand link. Did Al not have a hand link throughout this entire episode that we saw? Oh, I never thought about Ooh. it. I don't think he did. I don't think he did. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe it's in his pocket because he's got that weird suit on. And I just missed it in the first scene because it's just such a part of the show that you, you know, it's like the Blues Brothers line. How often does the train go by? So often you won't even notice it after a while. It's like the hand link is so ubiquitous that you don't even notice it anymore. So I didn't even think to look for it. So I'm curious to know if it even showed up in this episode. I can tell you as of, you know, Al's second or third scene i didn't see it okay well now i've got to check that out haven't i i don't remember him having the hand link in this one yeah i'd mad i thought you'd be all over that yeah i'm just i'm surprised i didn't notice but um so much more material for volume three haven't finished volume two yet it's not too late to <laughs> mm, yeah if you if you're saying you hadn't noticed after the first couple of scenes. I've just checked the first couple of scenes. He's, he, he has no hand link. That's right up until when he meets, uh, when Terry Hatcher first appears. So I've checked the first 15 minutes of the episode, no hand link. All right, so no hand link in this episode, which is odd since it's like the fourth produced episode. I got to think a hand link is going to show up in Right Handed God at some point. Curious. Had they even established the calculator hand link at this point? Or didn't he just have like a just basically a plexiglass strip in the pilot. I think the pilot was the only time that appeared. Yeah, in season 1 there's um there's definitely there's a there's a slightly unique one in double identity that then never appears again and then yeah, they switch to the regular calculator hand link for the rest of the time. I I'm, I'm skipping through the whole rest of the episode. I'm just obsessed with this now. <laughs> I don't think he did. I don't recall that ever being a thing. He just sort of, I feel like the, the hand link became like a good kind of 
prop for him to play with too like when he just didn't yes. have like a lot to do because there's not a lot of stage business that dean stockwell can do because he can't interact with anything so it's like it's that or a cigar or pockets <laughs> yes yeah and it's funny that you guys mentioned that like stage business and playing because in the interview that i did with mr stern he told me that dean was such a professional he said he was either playing with a cigar or playing with ziggy and i know he meant the hand link yeah, but he said yeah. no matter where he was no matter what take he was doing he would always do the same stage business at the same time during his lines because he knew that back in the editing bay that no matter where they cut to and from, they would have to match it. And it was just Dean was such such an old pro that he could think ahead to the point where, okay, this is what they're going to need. So let me tailor my performance to do that. So it's just odd that he didn't, he didn't have a handling to do that with in this, in this episode. You guys, I'm going to be quiet now for the entire rest of this recording (laughs) because I'm now halfway through right hand of God. Um, No handling so far. No spoilers. Stop jumping the timeline. I want to talk about this. You're taking away the conversation from the next episode or the next. We're not going to talk about. Oh, we'll we'll talk about handling in right hand of God. We've had that discussion. I mean, the hand is in the in the name, and there's no handling scandal. (laughs) I smell scandal. I guess it just wasn't as much of a of a crutch and. In season yeah. one, they do some interesting things uh, hologram-wise in this episode. Uh, first of all, Al walks down the stairs, which I, th- I think is a thing they don't do later. Like, he would just, like, pop in and out. Yeah. You know, I noticed that he popped in lower than Sam as Sam was coming down the stairs. I don't recall him actually climbing or walking down the stairs. He, d- he does start climbing down the stairs after that, though. Okay. To all meet right. up with Sam. Yeah. They do that kind of cool thing uh, where when they're in the club where Al's hologram like starts looking blue and translucent. You're a ghost. You look like a ghost. A ghost. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I love that Sam says you look like a ghost and he's laughing and Al just looks annoyed at him. <laughs> <laughs> what, I, what I loved is that um, I don't think I've ever seen this episode with the original music. So the second I heard Iron Butterfly come on, I was really distracted. And I was just like, oh, let me get back because I, I really love Inagata DeVita. So it was like, good choice. Good choice of music. In a God of a freedom. I have some timey-wimey questions. Mm-hmm. Go for it. All right. We like the timey-wimey stuff. So we have a general order one. Quantum leap rule numero uno, the time traveler shall not take advantage of his position to improve or alter his life. But then we see Sam giving Donna string theory. So is this GTFW or... I guess really Sam himself, since Sam is leaping himself, cementing the future and like creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if he's priming Donna with this information and then she can go and be an asset on Project Quantum Leap after they meet, it just struck me as this is very convenient for for his future. <laughs> Technically, if you're going into it, I think he got the idea from himself and Future Boy, <laughs> if you're going that far yes. back, how he got the string theory. But I think the official explanation they give how he came up with it, he developed it with Professor Lo Negro. Professor Lo Negro. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I, even, I even wrote about it in my book. So I don't think Donna gave it to him, but yeah, it's interesting. I'm not saying that she gave it to him, but it's just like now he's indoctrinating her into the theory and this is how many years before they meet isn't donna gonna say wait a minute project what now quantum leap 
did you get this off of a, a lit professor in the 70s? Like where? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Uh, here was the thing that bothered me about uh, Donna and the Leap Back and the, the fallout from this episode is that it's not really clear what all Donna knows about what Sam changed in history. And this episode by itself, it's fine. It's great. I love her character. I think like she's she's really developed and this story is really moving. The fact that Sam just wants to... Um, to write this wrong in his past. But uh, the way that it ends up, like Donna is at the project and I don't think it's really a great ending for her character. And I feel like she should have had some agency in the situation. Like Sam changed mm-hmm. history to put her in this position and for what? Yeah. Yep, for himself. <laughs> we, we got no answer for that. Exactly. Yeah. Or no comfortable there's just, answer. There's just no um, addressing of this issue. That's the thing. Well, I feel like if they had gone through with the wedding, she more than likely would have been on the project since she had just come off a Starbright. So she obviously moved in those circles. I don't know if, sure. if, if, if that's what he changed, but at the same time, just you know, showing her the, the main theory that is the foundation of Quantum Leap, it just struck me as wouldn't Donna remember that? She might remember it, but what difference would it really make? In, in, a, in a kind of timey-wimey sort of way, she understands the – or she knows of the theory. Unless she goes off and starts, like, changing her entire future in terms of what she studies and looks into that further, it seems to me like she'd show up at the Quantum Leap Project think, yeah, all right, I remember that, but it's not actually going to change anything in terms of the way the project develops or anything that Sam's doing there. Yeah, I don't think he taught her how a time travel project works. It's just a theory that he had about finite universes or time or something or other. Like, <laughs> I have a string theory on time. Uh, it's very complex and completely unprovable, but I'd like your opinion. It's based on an expanding but finite universe. Well, the universe is infinite. Maybe not, and... and if not, then time is finite too. The string theory doesn't really say. What is the string theory? Like your your one end of the string is your life. One end, it, well, talking about his string theory. One end of the string mm. is your life. One end is your death, and then you wad them all up, and then your life's touched, and you can leap. What does that mean scientifically? Nothing. It's nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't give you anything. He does have a scientific explanation of the string theory in Lee Harvey Oswald. It helped close the conceptual gulf between relativity and quantum mechanics. It postulates that subatomic particles are not points, but strings about one Planck length long. The rate at which strings vibrate can generate the properties of all known particles. Oh, right. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald says that while becoming Sam briefly in the yeah. the waiting room. So presumably, Sam, Sam during this cheesy montage, Sam mentions all that to uh, Donna as well. Is that what we're thinking? I don't know about that. <laughs> That's some heavy talking for... <laughs> casual meets at the library and shit but yeah (laughs) and she's going can you explain the plank length by like using your tie uh just like show me it there i see okay yeah he's like he takes off i think the belt of his like ugly jacket (laughs) yes sorry jacket this is like the ugliest outfit sam ever wore except for the smoking jacket (laughs) they went into some really heady stuff there Yeah, I am. Uh, I, I guess we're we're sort of getting into one of the biggest issues that I had with the episode. It's the Sam's relationship with Donna. I'm just trying to see this from Donna's point of view. Good, because no one else did. Because she knew 
how he was going to order his cheeseburger. They were meant to be. A, a Coke would be fine. A Coke, cheeseburger, and fries, medium rare on the burger. Hold the tomato, extra onion. She knew. She knew how I like my burger. Shove that up your gauge circuit, Ziggy. What the, what? How would she, she know that? <laughs> how would she know his burger order? They've never met. This would make more sense if the, if she knew Sam already. Exactly. And maybe she saw something in him, but like, that's just magic. It's fate. It's fate. No, it's not. <laughs> this is dumb. Yeah, it really is dumb. And then I, I keep seeing it from her point of view. I mean, on the surface, okay, you, we're seeing it from Sam's point of view. I mean, anyway, we're supposed to be. So if you're buying the romance angle, if you're buying that star-crossed nonsense angle, then it's all very romantic and very organic. But from Donna's point of view, this is a creeper who sleeps with his <laughs> students to give them grades, uh, just like a real bag of shit. And he just keeps creeping on her and creeping on her <laughs> invasively. And it's just like, what are you doing? It's just like, get away from me. <laughs> I watched this with a, a friend last night who'd never seen it. And she was like, do not kiss him at the end. Please tell me they don't kiss. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> And then I, I I couldn't help but feel sorry for Donna because Sam is at the Watergate. He's on top of the world. He's dancing down the stairs. I got connections with the man upstairs. And then he's gone. Donna's got to drive back from D.C. to Ohio with a newly with returned professor. What's his face? Oh, no. I never even thought about that. She's got to be in the car with creepy creeper tin <laughs> for this whole time. <laughs> and, and she's at her most vulnerable ever because she just saw her dad for the first time in 10 years. Yeah, well, and she's got to, like, trust Dr. Bryant because she thinks it's the same sensitive Scott Bakula, exactly, Dr. And Bryant. Exactly, and just going to stick his hand right down her blouse. <laughs> no, no. Okay, look, we know he slept with students, but I, we, there's no, there's nothing to indicate that he did not get consent from the students. There's a power structure there that definitely, like, sways things in a not moral direction, but I don't think he was, like, molesty about it. <laughs> I'm just saying I wouldn't put it past him. All right. <laughs> yeah, he might he might try and make a move or two. I yeah, the whole Donna and this guy's relationship afterwards, I don't know about that. And for that, for you know, it's just in the same in the same vein. Sam basically talks uh, Jamie Lee out of sleeping with Bryant in favor of going with Oscar. Out of marrying uh, Dr. Bryant, There's, there seems to be an indication that they've slept together at some point, though, before this. I, well, you were going to be Lancelot tonight. Of course they've slept yeah. together. They role play yeah, everything. they definitely slept yeah. together. I mean, they're both into it. But then he's going to get back into Oscar's car. Number one, why am I driving your car? How did we get to DC? Number two, Jamie Lee, you're with me. Weren't you just coming to my house after class and now you're- now you're with him? I don't know. Isn't there like other fish in the sea? Maybe he... <laughs> I'm sure he's got other students waiting around. It just confuses me. What do they remember? <laughs> yeah, no, none of it makes sense. How do you reconcile it? Guys, can we go back a minute? Because I, <clears throat> I, I, was, I was a little bit quiet during that, the last couple of minutes because I've just been pulling up the script because I had a feeling that Chris may not appreciate this, may not like it, but the script does explicitly say... That it is fate that um, she knew the burger. That that it's it's right there in the stage directions. That uh, yeah, it, it is some 
colossal act of fate. <laughs> this is the same thing as the star talking to Donna. This is magic nonsense. <laughs> she looks at him a beat for the first time. This is after she said, hold the tomato, put on the extra onion. Uh, she looks at him for a beat. For the first time, their eyes really meet. A moment of kismet that holds time still and frightens the shit out of her. She backs off and walks away, glancing back over her shoulder. Oh, man. She knew it. She knew how I liked my burger. Oh. Shut that up, your gauge circuit, Ziggy. <laughs> your gauge circuit, Ziggy. I love it. Yeah. Uh, so, see, the, yeah, it's it, the thing is, they could have done this destined. episode without that and still came, got the same point across, right? Because you see, like, there are scenes in this episode. He is a scumbag. He is a sleazy scumbag. He's not even appealing to look at. Just a grosso <laughs> all around. And he's following uh, Donna around. She's like, yeah, I can I can pass your class by doing the work, creepo. Yeah. <laughs> and um, But then he meets her in the, the classroom and is looking over, like, all these, like, equations on the wall and, like, starts talking about the poetry of physics. Ever read Lemaitre's Primeval Atom? No. Then came the explosion, followed by the filling of the heavens with smoke. We come too late to do no more than visualize the splendor of creation's birthday. It's beautiful. It's the poetry of physics. And I think that is really the only time, you don't even get this in Leap Back, this is the only time that you really like understand them as... As people, mm -hmm. how they interact with each other, what the appeal was. She sees something in him beyond the weird grosso. Like there's there's something there. And I really enjoyed that because you kinda like you get more of a vibe of like of these characters, yeah. like who they are to each other. Yeah, I, I thought all of the stuff between Scott and Terry was great. I think that they had undeniable chemistry. I bought the fact that, you know, she liked him and he liked her. But again, I'm seeing it as Sam. I'm trying to put myself, yes. you know, in yeah. this situation yeah. where, you know, Donna would actually be interacting with this person, with this stranger who up until now has been nothing but a lech. Yeah. Well, she she's seeing something in him that clearly she didn't see before because it's not Dr. Bryant, it's Sam. Right. But you can also see that she's trying to keep a distance there. I think some lines are definitely crossed, but I don't think she was about to actually, like, get in a relationship with him, even though in the end she did seem to be like, well, maybe if circumstances were different. Yeah, they did say that if I was 12 years younger or you were 12 years older, that whole that whole gag, you know. If only you were a little... A little younger. Uh, or I was a little older. That's not going to stop Bryant when he comes back. Yeah, but Donna's going to stop it. Donna ain't going to be about that. But then think about it. Now Sam's setting her up for a fall because she got to trust this guy... And Sam then set Sam her up for a fall with this whole premise. Oh, that's true. She didn't trust men, and then he abandoned her, and she had another guy leave her behind. This is horrible for Donna. And then she lets she lets this creeper in, and then Sam leaves. He's going to go right back to being a creeper and hitting on her. So Did it's he? like instantaneous. <laughs> he I, left I, her I, life worse than <laughs> from the beginning. <laughs> oh Jesus! Now she's gonna hit me with a frying pan. <laughs> Sam, <laughs> what did you do? That's how come Sam knows how to quote from Lamatra's Primeval Adam. It's just like, okay, I know how to melt her. I'm just gonna say this this jazz <laughs> about the poetry of physics. All right, Donna. Yeah, how <laughs> to handle my lady, guys? I'll be right back. Oh man, <laughs> what a dork he is in this episode. He's like, mm, I love the smell of Bunsen burners. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Okay, 
As an English major, I kind of took umbrage with this because he says... Four of my least favorite cliches. Headbands, bell-bottoms, flower power, and English lit. How is English lit a cliche? It's a legitimate area of study. Why is he so anti-English lit? He does a lot of reading. I, I realize there's more to it than that, but I mean, like, it just seems like, what what's his beef? <laughs> yeah. I like that he has this, like, disdain for the 70s, too. Like, this is, like, something they do in other episodes, too. There's no real reason for it. It's just, like, a decade he ain't into. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I guess thinking about his conservative Indiana upbringing and then what we see um, with the Make Love Not War shirt uh, in the kitchen, the ruckus that Katie caused by wearing that, I could see him having a general disdain for – the 70s mindset, the me generation, sort of the, the the free love and the openness that is sort of embodied when you think of that decade. Anyway, the, the beginning parts of that decade. And that's right in Sam's wheelhouse. I mean, he grew up as a conservative farm boy. So I can see it. I think he just doesn't like the fashion. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's both. I think he's like bell bottoms. Who does? <laughs> He doesn't wear bell bottoms in this episode, I don't think. Maybe, but yeah, some pretty ugly get-ups, and I feel like uglier than usual. Maybe they found some more authentic stuff and put it on him because they looked old and like they were falling apart. Maybe that was the point. His character's kind of a grosso. Yeah, and yeah, <laughs> it, it looked like a lot of thrift store stuff, especially that that corduroy suit that he's wearing in the beginning. Yeah, it didn't feel like stuff that was tailor-made for him because like Jean-Pierre Jolie, I knew how to like make him look real good. And he didn't in this episode. <laughs> I, again, maybe that was the idea. That's true. So I, I just want to say that um, both Leslie S. Sachs and Michael McGrady, who played Jamie Lee and Oscar, were the MVPs of this episode because they had the worst <laughs> characters, the worst characters, and they made them work. How old is Oscar? How old is he? I don't know. Jamie Lee looked pretty old, too. They both looked like they were in their 30s. Yeah. They did not look like <laughs> young college students. I'm sorry. No no disrespect to the actors. <laughs> they, but, like, I did not buy them old. as college students. <laughs> that made the whole, like, you know, oh, the student with the teacher thing even weirder because, like, she looked about the same age as Scott Bakulis. It was like, I don't know. All right. Um, and just put Oscar in, like, a letterman's jacket and, like, look, he's a wrestling star. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. That was a, a thing in the 80s when I was growing up watching movies about high schoolers. Mm -hmm. And they're clearly in their 30s. Some of them are balding. Like, I don't think anybody under 35 stored in Porky's, but they're all supposed to be in high school. <laughs> I feel like this was like the worst case of that, though. I feel like the rest of Quantum Leap did a pretty good job of like feasibly the age they're supposed to be. Yeah, probably. Probably. And I think that Oscar had the funniest line of the episode. Isn't Jamie Lee in your thoughts night and day? Yeah, except for wrestling practice. <laughs> I don't know why. Cracked me up. I just I had to pause it because yeah. I was laughing so hard. I don't know. It just struck me as very. The funny. delivery is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> just so dry. No, I did. I I love Sam. I love Sam interacting with this dumb uh, wrestling guy, and then like he's like threatening him and like throwing darts, and he says like "ain't," and then Sam has to correct him like "isn't." <laughs> he just has to do it. But I mean, Jamie Lee is is the character that really strikes me as just like the dumbness of the writing that this episode, you know, could descend to. I guess maybe they're trying to make her like this starry eyed girl with nothing but romantic visions of poetry in her head. And that's why she's so over the top. And she speaks in sonnets and in Bronte and uh, in Shakespeare. And But then they have the thing where 
obviously she's been having sex with him for a long time because they have all the role playing stuff and oh there's rubber stuff in here and there's there's bondage <laughs> stuff in here and there's just Hell like in the closet looking at all of the kinky stuff. <laughs> He's so excited. He's so happy. Sam, there's all kinds of kinky stuff in here. There's leather stuff, there's a Roman toga, there's rubber Jamie stuff. Jamie Lee, don't you have more important things to do like homework? I'm trying to work on my A in English lit. She ain't as naive as I think that they were They were trying to portray her as just like this hapless naive thing that was swept up. Well, I mean, you can be into like sex stuff and not be very bright. It was, it was very much a disconnect for me. And I think it was just for the sake of humor. Kind of like with the committee lines, the just throwaway lines for humor, short guy, you know, knickers. You realize that if we ever have to follow up with these characters, you're going to have to sort of, you know, explain that or live up to it. Or it- Do you think Quantum Leap cared about consistency with that sort of thing? Did anyone in nah. Honeymoon Express look like Lincoln to you? Like, <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> like, I don't think they cared. They're like, Ziggy, we keep referring to as a he. I don't know. It's going to be Deborah Pratt, whatever. And now, now it's going to be a girl. <laughs> we don't care. I realize I'm thinking like a fan here. I'm thinking like someone looking for a continuity, looking for a through line. So Maybe in the new show, we'll see them. We'll meet them. That- that's what I want. I really want to see Whitesman, you know, hobble on up in his, mm. in his walker and give Ben a hard time. <laughs> That'd be great. No comment. It'd be like McCoy showing up in uh, TNG. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, it, like, but wearing an exosuit like the TNG novels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to know what the deal is with uh, Colonel Wojohowicz. What the deal? Like, why would you leave your family and just leave and like never contact them? Like, I could Chris, understand if you're getting uh, a divorce. <laughs> I could understand. But he just deserted them. He just deserted them. Like, she hasn't spoken to him in 10 years. And then all of a sudden, he's just like, how do you know? Of course, I love my daughter. Of course, I miss her. If you loved her and you missed her, why did you abandon her? Why did you just get up and leave? Why didn't you at least, you know, say, well, this is not the situation for me, but I want to maintain contact because I love you so much. Again, just it's lazy, lazy writing. It gets complicated sometimes, Chris. I don't know. <laughs> um, no, I think parents sometimes they do that, and especially fathers, it's very easy to do that. They're, they never really go into the specific reason for it, but it doesn't seem like it wasn't because he didn't care about his daughter, obviously, but there were just other circumstances. There could have been anything, and especially the time period we're talking about. This would have been like 60s when he left. Like, yeah. I could see, like, maybe he fell in love with another woman and he was too ashamed to come back or, you know, like, there could have been any sort of thing. Right. But here's the thing is we're now giving very plausible explanations for why. Um, It could have been something like the mother said, well, if you're going, go. You're not welcome here anymore. You don't have rights. Um, But anything to finesse it, just give us a reason why this person who we're supposed to care about her getting back with. Why did he do the horrible thing that he did? At least give us some kind of story other than I haven't seen him in 10 years. He just up and left. Maybe the mystery is part of why Donna is interested in the things she's interested in. She says she wants to know why people do the things they do, why things happen. Maybe that's part of it. She never knew what happened with her dad. We don't know what happened. That's part of the mystery to unravel. All right. Sure. Does that help, maybe? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's no worse than magic cheeseburgers, so. Yeah, good, it's better. <laughs> I don't know. I just keep thinking to the interview with uh, Michael Gregory that we had on this oh. show where he talked about <laughs> when they hugged, he was just thinking about her boobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every time I see that scene, that's all I'm thinking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and by the way, they're real oh. and they're spectacular. 
spectacular. <laughs> uh, Michael Gregory saying what we're all thinking, which is great. <laughs> Everyone seems of, like I've got a whole paragraph in Beyond the Mirror Image of different people talking about Terry Hatcher's boobs. <laughs> just, Terry Hatcher was great in this episode. I want yeah, to give her she's, credit. Yeah, she, she was terrific. She could like cry on a dime. You just see her like mm. big eyes getting moist, and you're like, "Oh my god, that's just so meaningful," you know? Yeah. Oh, no, she was spectacular. I, I mean, I really bought her character. I bought her performance. I liked her chemistry with Scott. I thought that she mm. was a get. So if if you're gonna have this as your second episode, at least you have a cast that's engaging and has some some charisma and some chemistry. And um, I think she really really pulled it off. She was really good. Oh, that's all I wanted to hear. <laughs> hey, I know that this is getting into the weeds of our uh, <laughs> of our Patreon bonus shows, but um, Wojciechowicz lived at the uh, at the Watergate. Do you think he lived next door to the werewolf of uh, Washington? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it all comes together. This Watergate wah-wah is ridiculous. Should have been a crossover. Like Dean Stockwell, like, hey, that guy looks familiar over there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he sticks his head through the wall. What's all that screaming over there? There's some guy tied to a chair. He's got his, <laughs> his fingers stuck in a bowling ball. <laughs> <laughs> There's some guy over there chewing on the lampshade. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of bathrooms in there, don't you think? <laughs> Why are there so many? <laughs> Only 12 people know what we're talking about, so <laughs> congratulations, you lucky 12. You lucky dozen. Uh, and I'm just trying – I guess I guess the, the joke here is that Sam somehow caused the Watergate scandal or at least was one of the, the catalysts for them discovering the break-in. Yeah. No. Yeah. So – Okay. This, I feel like is the most involved one of the like kisses with history was with the plot. Because a lot of them were just kind of like it would happen during the course of events, but this is like kind of integral to what happens because that's how they get inside. That's how Sam gets yeah. Donna to her dad. This is not like just walking past a dude that starts choking and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was high. <laughs> yeah, no, this no, is no. plot important. <laughs> okay, and now we carry on with the plot. We had 30 seconds to fill. Yeah, in a bathroom and then Michael Jackson shows up. All right. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think the intimation here is had that security guard not gotten uh, suspicious of Sam, not seen the car still out in the parking lot, he wouldn't have investigated further and they might never have discovered the break-in. That guard was doing a great job. Like, there's something about that guy who doesn't sit right with me. Like, he sees Dr. Bryant and he knows, like, he's a predator. Like, oh, no. <laughs> this ain't passing my smell test. Yeah. <laughs> she's not with him voluntarily. Mm -mm. I don't know. What does Donna's dad think of the fact that she's with this guy? Like, they haven't given him any explanation. And then they go off to have their, like, touching talk and he, like, kisses her nose and they cut to, like, Wojohowitz uh, watching the whole thing. And then, like... <laughs> What what is he thinking in his head about what's going on with his daughter and this this greasy weirdo? <laughs> I'm thinking Sam maybe at least combed his hair a little bit better. It looks like he gave him a shave at one point. So I'm not saying that it made it right. I'm just saying maybe it made it slightly less disgusting. I don't know. Um, other music in this, uh, aside from Inagata Devita, which I think they played almost all of, they got to the drum solo anyway, uh, Iron Butterfly. They also had, uh, American Pie by Don McLean. That was very nice yeah, to hear. Mm -hmm. good song. And, uh, a song by the Stylistics, which I've heard a million times, but I didn't know it was the Stylistics and I still don't really know what the song is called. Betcha by Golly Wow. Is that the one that plays over, like, they're, like, touching talk in the car? There's some sort of easy listening sounding thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. American Pie when they're pulling into the gas station. <laughs> that gas station attendant, <laughs> his ridiculous mustache 
It was so good. You just see him for a second, like, he's just like, ah, the key! (laughs) (laughs) They really did invest in the background characters in this. I mean, they gave people who had lines, they distinguished them somewhat. I mean, they had uh, the the space cadet girl and the the hippie girl Mm. and the whatever. I mean, they even named them. I was looking at the credits and they gave them all very interesting names. Yeah. They were really invested in making the setting come to life. They didn't just run into, hey, do you want fries with that? Everybody was weird and unique, and I liked it. All right. I got so, I got some other stuff here. Oh. Uh, Matt, did you have something else before I start railroading everything? I, I've got no other notes, but just because I've got the script open, uh, it reminded me. I'd forgotten about the hilariously bad opening monologue in the <laughs> original script. So we, we've already talked about the fact that Throughout the first season, um, this is like a standard thing. We've got the uh, time-travelling Lone Ranger, but then he also usually has a bit of a chat about his previous leap. So this originally came after Double Identity. And if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read this bit out, because I think this is great. The first time the big blackout of 65 happened, I missed it. I was just a kid living on a farm in Indiana, and more concerned about blowing the fuse on our electric milking machine than power failures on the East Coast. (laughs) The second time it happened, in my life anyway, I discovered it was my fault. Well, not exactly mine. You see, the whole thing started when Ziggy, and then there's a clip of Al. Ah, no, that's not Ziggy. Ziggy's a computer. That's Al. (laughs) Al's a hologram. Maybe I better explain. I was in the middle of this time travel experiment where God or something tapped me for a Boy Scout duty, as Al calls it. I have to do a good deed, put something right that once went wrong before I can move on. I've only been at this a short while, but so far I've saved the life of a test pilot and his daughter in 56, won a baseball game in 68, and here in 65 put a couple of lovers together and even started men going to hairstyling salons. But that doesn't seem to be enough. Evidently, I'm here for a grander purpose. Uh, and, and then we we see uh, Nonna winning bingo. and uh, Like I say, it's a dumb idea, but at this point I'm desperate. Oh, and uh, oh my God. and then he leaps, and um, he and the the pipe falls out of his mouth, and and we carry on. Amazing. What an amazing opening! <laughs> That's not Ziggy. <laughs> That's Al. He's a hologram. <laughs> what you didn't realize was that Quantum Leap was originally a half hour show. <laughs> maybe I'd better explain. <laughs> Yeah, that's me. I bet you're wondering how I got in this situation. <laughs> oh, <Exactly>. boy. <laughs> Wait, so was that in the script for this episode? That's Yeah, that's the script for this episode. That's that's how this one opened. Oh, because none of that none of that was in anything I watched today. <laughs> so. No, because no. that was what the uh, original lead-in was, because Double Identity was originally what was supposed to come after the pilot. Yes. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, that makes much more sense. So the double identity script probably has some flashbacks to the pilots, which I will will get to. Oh, that should be a lot of fun. But yeah, holy moly, just like they're getting a hernia, twisting and turning and trying to make everybody understand this every which mm-hmm. way coming and going. It's like, whew. thank God for the saga cell, because <laughs> unsustainable. They all open with something like that, but that's got to be the worst. Yeah, it gets to a point when you're a writer and you say, how many times do we have to rewrite this? Like, how many more ways can we do this? Yes. Oh, that's great. That's some great stuff. Okay, so uh, I have some more uh, history-changing stuff. So uh, when uh, when Al is showing Sam the hieroglyphics, he mentions Sam's six doctorates, but later at seven. Hmm. Hmm. 
Later, uh, I think in Shock Theater, he says that he has seven degrees. So somehow Sam got another... Remote learning. <laughs> from, from time, like he's like yeah. taking night classes. Exactly, or... yeah. It's, uh, hang on, is that scene before or after the montage? Because I'm wondering if in the montage... <laughs> he got another degree. <laughs> no, 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 he just he just says, when you meet this guy called Sam Beckett, tell him to get a degree in ancient languages. <laughs> yeah. Ancient languages, yes. And he changes his own history. I guess. I mean, I do kind of <laughs> like the the idea. This is clearly just like a goof on their part. I don't think they intended there to be anything more to that. But I do like the idea that um, that just little things get changed like that because of things that Sam does. Yeah. You can explain away any inconsistency in Quantum Leap with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. What else you got, Allison? Okay. So uh, there's the part where um, Sam's trying to convince Al to get information on Donna's dad. <laughs> And Al's like, don't give me that sick puppy look. Because <laughs> you can't resist Sam's sick <gasps> puppy look. <laughs> it was such a great moment. It's another thing that really cements their friendship. This is not the first time Sam has given him the sick puppy look to get what he wants. Apparently, apparently not. And in the script, he follows it up with, I drown sick puppies. <laughs> I love that. Dark. Glad they cut that a little bit. Yeah, you know they already went to suicide right off the bat in the mm-hmm. first scene. Juliet committed suicide. That's an interesting choice. Okay. <laughs> Al's a little darker here. Yeah, he de- he definitely was like a little less lighthearted in the, the early seasons. Like he still was like jokey, but I feel like they went a little darker with him than they would later. The word wang shows up in the script as well. Oh my God. Wang? Where did they say wang? <laughs> there was a young man from Kent who's... Which gets cut oh. off at that point, but in the script he carries on, Wang was so, and then gets cut okay, off. Okay, I was wondering too, I was like, where is this limerick going that Sam knows it's going to be dirty? Because he hadn't said that much yet, I guess. I'm so glad you asked. There, there once was a young man from Kent, <laughs> whose, hang, hang on, hang on, whose Wang was so long that it bent. To save himself trouble, he put it in double, and instead of coming, he went. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and that didn't turn her on? Jamie Lee's a prude. <laughs> That's from the second edition of uh, Beyond the Mirror Image, which I follow up with, this is unlikely to have charmed anyone, let alone Jamie Lee. (laughs) Sam knew. He's like, horny is not romantic. Sorry. (laughs) Do carry on. We have some other stuff about how this episode is filmed that they wouldn't have done later, because I do feel like they're doing a little more kind of cornball stuff that that they tone down a bit, like um, to the camera punches. Like Oscar shows up and like punches Sam, he like punches the camera, and then Sam like punches the camera back. Like they definitely were doing it goofier than like, you wouldn't see other episodes like in season three filmed like that. No, but it, I mean that that shot made the opening credits for a couple of seasons and worthwhile too. It feels very eighties. Yes, it, it feels like very much that decade. And again, I, I feel like they felt a need to amp up some of the goof factor so that, okay, maybe you're not understanding the premise here, but at least you can laugh along with some of the story beats. You're right. It is very out of character for the show or what the show became. But again, they're still finding their footing here. Yeah, it was definitely a little more cornball yeah, at this stage. Yeah. Uh, okay, I only have two more things. They're not really uh, important. <laughs> I like Sam's dance down the stairs. I like that he's just really happy at that moment. That was the best part of the episode. I love that yeah. part. You're, yeah, 100% <laughs> there. I, I I adored that beat, uh, that character beat. And it was second only to, to when uh, we realized that Sam and Al are very close friends. 
And I also yeah. love when Al disappears and Sam, he's not even surprised. He just looks over and says, ah, you chicken. You know, he's not mad. He's not, he's just like, all right, I'll see you later. <laughs> just, yeah. you know, just, it's like an easy familiarity that the two of them have and they're very comfortable with one another. And like Sam dancing down the steps and gloating a little bit was just like, it was great. Scott sparkled in that scene. Yeah. Just a really nice moment. Uh, also, I just wanted to note, it was really weird when uh, Al first shows up, he's like kneeling on the floor to like check out uh, Jamie Lee's butt. And um, <laughs> he just stays like that for a while, like Sam gets on the floor with him. And it just was, it was just unusual blocking, that they're just kneeling on the floor for no reason for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> What's more, Al, than lecherously kneeling to look at somebody's ass? I don't know. Just kind of <laughs> different things that they were doing. Well, I mean, all in all, I think uh, we got some pretty good stuff out of this episode, even though it was a little weird. Uh, why don't we do some final thoughts? Allison. Yeah, I think this is a great episode. It's got like a lot of uh, growing pains to it, but I think that's part of the fascinating part of going back to this this season in these episodes. Just really interesting stuff. And Matt? Yeah, it's it's a fun episode. It's got such a good cast. All of them are just really on form, e- even if the age <coughs> of some of the performers is a little bit odd. Um, <laughs> they were very well cast aside from that. And uh, you've just got to overlook some of the, the stuff about Donna and the agency that she lacks in, uh, oh, let, let's just change her entire personal history and mm. we'll, we'll go with that. Um, yeah, like you said, growing pains. Um, but it's uh, you overlook all that. It's a really, really good episode. I'm glad they opened with this one after the pilot. I am too. I, I enjoyed it more than I expected to. I remember seeing this one for the first time and saying, oh, that was the second episode. But now with the whole series behind us and being more invested in, in the fandom than I ever have, it was kind of weird. And it was kind of dumb, but it was just finding its footing. And uh, for all that, it was very entertaining, very charming. And um, it helped us get invested in Sam in a show where it's almost impossible for them to be able to do something like that for you. So uh, I'm glad that they they went this route for the second episode as well, because it just gives you a bit more character to sink your teeth into instead of getting to the leap of the week format. So it saw a unique challenge. And it met it in spades. I thought they did a great job with it. So I think that's going to put our discussion of Starcrossed in the books. But don't go anywhere because after the break, we're going to have an interview with Quantum Leap editor Michael Stern. And we also have some feedback. So stay tuned. We'll see you on the flip side. The QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. Please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast and give as much as you can. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a contributor to the quantum leap podcast. It goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going. Thank you. This is Michael Gregory, and you're listening to the quantum leap podcast. Okay, everyone, we're back. And before I uh, throw to this interview with Michael Stern, I just wanted to let you guys know, um, I spoke to Michael over Zoom and, you know, Zoom being the hell that Zoom is. Um, 
there are a couple of places where the call dropped out. There are a couple of places where his audio gets a little bit um, warbly. So I've edited around that as much as I can. But just be forewarned, uh, it's a great interview. And without further ado, here is my chat with Michael Stern. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, Michael. Glad to be here. For those of you who don't know, Michael was an editor on Quantum Leap from 1991 to 1993, if IMDb is to be believed. And it says that you had worked on 14 episodes total and that you also edited on shows, genre favorites like The X-Files, Tremors, Buffy, Angel, Sequest 2032. Was that the one that Tommy was involved with, Tommy Thompson? Yep. You've also worked on more recent stuff uh, like Shameless and Orange is the New Black. Correct. Quite a career. So I'm just going to start with the simplest question because, you know, we might have people in the audience who are not so tech savvy. Can you just tell me what an editor for a television show does? Like, what's your basic job description? Absolutely. Um, I The best way I describe it is it's a thousand piece puzzle that I can put together any way I want and all the pieces are interchangeable. It's almost roughly, I'm going to use just a rough note, like eight to one, the amount of footage that you get to what's on the air. So usually a one hour television network show are like 44 minutes in around there. And well, now actually it's now more because back in that day, you were getting maybe, you know, 15 to 16 hours of footage total. Now, sometimes we get three to four hours a day, sometimes more. Uh, and a scene, like let's say it's just you and I talking at a table. It's going to be shot from many different directions. There'll be a wide shot, which is the master showing the two of us. Then they may go over my shoulder to get your coverage, over your shoulder to get my coverage. Maybe a close-up of me, a close-up of you. Camera moving back and forth, whatever the director chooses. And you get this palette of all these different takes. And my job is to take that and go through the takes and find what I feel are the best performances and put that scene together. Um, I do have a script that, you know, I follow that lets me know the dialogue and so forth, but each editor is going to bring something different to a scene. So there may be where like, I want to build a pause, you know, you have a long speech, but maybe I want to break it up and have like a few seconds, like after you deliver a line, maybe cut to a reaction from me, a reaction from you, and then keep the scene going. And some of the dialogue, you may have a long speech and some of the dialogue I may play over me reacting. It's all subjective. And there's a saying amongst editors, you give 10 editors the exact same footage for a scene, we're going to cut it 10 different ways. Each person is going to bring their own taste to it. So be it. So I always feel there's no right or wrong way to cut the scene. You know, it's subjective uh, and, and it can always be changed. But that is kind of my job is to take all this material and create the scene. And there's little things I'll, you know, I'll do that you'll never see or, you know, or hear. It, I could be stealing dialogue from another take and putting it in your mouth, you know, because I felt like I really like this take, but the line reading was better from another take. So I'm going to put that in your mouth. I think that just comes with the experience. I've always said, I can't teach you how to edit. I can show you how to run a system, kind of guide you. But once you cut something together, I can maybe look at it and say, hey, you know what? let's slow this down a little bit or let's play this in the wide shot. For me, I don't, I feel I don't cut conventionally. I cut it the way I want to see it. 
the producers can come in and change it. You know, they can say, hey, let's not go to the wide. Let's go to the close up there. The studio, the networks are going to have their say. But uh, I always try to start if they have a nice master start wide. And then I try to, if I can, if I have the footage, I'll pop into that close up for what I feel is like the important line. So I feel if I'm popping into a close up at a certain time, that line carries some emphasis. And there's a lot of shows and networks like once you get in the close up, we want to stay in the close up. I don't always agree with that. Sometimes I may like, well, I want to open it up a little bit. So I want to go back wide. If the if the performances, you know, dictate that I can and they're working and then maybe pop in close again later for something that I feel works. It, it, you never know till you get the material. And that actually gets a little bit deeper into the weeds that I was going to get um, into later in the interview. But it's since you're talking about it, I assumed that you're working with multiple takes. And um, on a show like Quantum Leap that shot on film and, you know, Don Belisario is very, um, he's very visionary. He's got his own sort of vision. Oh, no question. How much input did you have as an editor on the episode you're working on or any editor, how much input do you have in creating that final cut? Do you have a producer in the room with you saying, we really want to punch this or, or do they leave it up to your discretion and then review? Uh, it's both. So uh, the first cut is mine. Usually most one hour dramas are shot in eight days, roughly eight days. And you usually have four days after that last day of shooting to get your cut done. So you have like 12 days. And I cut it together however I would like to see it. And you, now in today's world, you have to put in all, you know, temp sound effects, temp music. If you're doing a heavy visual effects show, temp visual effects that look pretty close to what they're really going to look like. And then the director comes in and in television, the director has four days. So then, then you'll start working with them. And it just depends on the dread. The majority of directors, I find like 95% of my cuts are pretty much the way I've cut them. And they're usually, it's not patting myself on the back. They're usually pretty, very, you know, happy with it because they know we know the show. Uh, a lot of the directors, if they're not a producer director on the show, they're freelance. They're coming in, they're doing an episode and they're moving on to another show. And they know like, hey, you know the show better than I do. You know, I'm going to go with your discretion on certain things. Uh, and then, or they may have like, hey, you know, this is what I really wanted to do in this scene. You know, can we rework it? Like, okay, sure. Then after we send the cut to the producers and then they have technically four days before we send it to the network. And that's where uh, it, it is more hands-on because uh, if you're doing a network show, like I said, it's like 44 minutes. If you're doing like a Netflix or Showtime, you have like an hour. So most of the time the shows are heavy, meaning they're too long. So the usually big first course of business is when you're going through with the producers of what can they cut out? Um, I may have suggestions. My directors may have suggestions like, you know, I don't think we really need this scene. So a lot of times I'll be like, okay, we can lose this. Let's lose this. You know, let's go from this line, cut out all this dialogue, go to that line. And that, you know, helps to whittle down the show. And then they may, you know, yes, they may come in and say, hey, you know, I don't want to be in the wide shot there. I want to be in the close up or I want to play more of this on this character and less on that, you know, whatever. Because the scene is really about so-and-so. So let's play more of the dialogue on this actor while the other actor is speaking, like, okay. So, but I, I really feel that, I mean, a ballpark figure, probably in the high 90%, uh, my cut stays the way I had it. That's just a ballpark, except for obviously stuff that comes out. There's nothing, you know, that's just like, oh, that's that's a shame. It, it For some reason, shows are always, always heavy, always heavy. 
And that's just the nature, you know, it's just the nature of the beast. So sometimes you lose some really nice stuff, but you know, you leave it to the discretion. Exactly. So yeah, Don was, uh, Don obviously did have a clear vision and the beauty of quantum leap was it was its own little movie. Each episode, just Sam and Al were the consistence. Uh, so it made it really cool. Cause you're getting like your own little genre episode, you know, and it didn't have to like, it's not a storyline that we have to follow. So make sure we hit these points in this episode, you know, to make sure they come through clear. It's like, it was so much fun. And it was really the beginning of my career. So, and, uh, work on a show that I was a fan of. I've had that like three or four times in my career. That makes it that much better. So I've been watching quantum leap for three seasons. I got hired for seasons, you know, the final two seasons, it was like a dream come true. And I was just, you know, I was just getting started (laughs) and Don took a shot on me because I didn't have the experience. Well, that's great. And that's that actually to broaden out a little bit. I mean, so technically, who does the editor work for? Are you are you an employee of the network? Do you work for the production company or are you part of like the show staff? Technically, we're freelance. So I interview with the exec of the show that, you know, so usually I'll get a call from usually like nowadays, like from the post producer. Hey, I got your resume or or I know them. And they say, hey, you know, are you interested? I'd like to send your resume on to the exec. Sure. Hey, you know, can you come in for an interview? Now it's all on Zoom. But in back in the day when, you know, you would go in and it was usually minimum you're meeting with two people. I've met with up to 10. And I'm not an actor, but I feel like it's an audition. They want to know if they want to hang with me in a dark room. That's how I look at it. And what can I do? Because I figure I know they're going to, in my mind, they're going to interview a hundred people. What do I bring to this 15 minutes that I have to make them, you know, remember me. And I feel now my resume, they know I can do the job. They see my resume. So it's engaging in conversation and so forth. So they will be the ones, it will be the execs who hire you and then you need to be approved by the studios. But that's just a formality. You know, it's usually the exec saying, yeah, I want to hire Michael Stern. Um, then I'll get a call from the studio saying, Hey, you know, welcome aboard. So, yeah, but if you break it down, we're freelance. So how did you get into editing to begin with? And then how did you get this dream job on quantum leap? How'd you get involved with, with quantum? All right. Uh, I'll try to make it as brief as I as I can. As I told you, I, I thought <laughs> at first, you know, I was hoping to go into news. That didn't work out. I was living in Tucson where I went to school at University of Arizona. And I met my wife, Laura, right after I graduated. She's from Tucson. And I'm like, God, you know, news thing isn't working out. What do I know? I know production because I thought I'd never move back to L.A. I wasn't going to live here again. So I got a job. This was in the mid 80s with this very, very small production called the Arthur Company, non-union. They were in co-production with Turner Broadcasting. They had three half-hour sitcoms, 50 episodes each, down and dirty, cheap. Two of the shows shared the same stage. They literally just built one set on one side, the other, and would turn the cameras around when they filmed. That's how cheap it was. <laughs> very, very archaic editing system back then. And they, I got, they go, okay, you're going to be, uh, you're going to work with the editors. You'll be the uh, the assistant. It was nine years. I'm like, uh, okay, I didn't know anything. So I was there one month shy of two years. I'm like, all right, I want to get on a union show. Uh, I feel I'm ready. And I don't remember how I knew this man named Larry Levin, who at the time was head of post-production at New World Television. There were no beepers. There were no cell phones. I would call him and he would take my calls. 
And finally, he goes, all right, I don't have a job for you, but I'll send you to go learn an editing system. And back when I started, there were probably 10 different editing systems. Now it's all Avid. But back then, there were numerous ones. Mm -hmm. And he sent me to go learn this editing system called the Ediflex. And um, I was there four days training. He goes, you ready to be an assistant? I'm like, yeah. He goes, they need an assistant on this show called Sledgehammer. I went, how do I get in the union? It's like, don't say anything. You know, how do you get hired on a union show without being in the union? We all backdoored it. I got put on the show. They were trying to do it with two editors and one assistant. I put whatever it was back then, 90 days in. They called the, the editor's guild. The editor's was like, all right, you know, you're not supposed to do that. I paid my dues. I got in the union. And at the time, my favorite show on TV was a show called Tour of Duty about a platoon in Vietnam. Oh, sure. Sure. Great, I, I love it. Show. And I called the producer named Vahan Masikian. Gave him a call and said, I'm assistant editor of my favorite show on TV. He goes, why don't you come in for an interview? I'm like, okay. So I met with Vahan for two hours and he had a dog, I remember. And I'm a huge dog fan. In fact, I'm a, a partner in a dog rescue called The Real Bark. And uh, his dog sat on my lap. He goes, I want you to go meet this editor, Michael Rips. We call him The Ripper. He's looking for an assistant. I'm like, okay. I hit it off with Michael. He hired me. And the system was so archaic and slow. And this was a big Vietnam show and they had battle scenes every episode. So Michael would give me the battle scenes to cut because on this system, it took forever just to make an edit. It just, it was very slow and archaic. And the next season, Michael didn't come back. So they gave me shows to cut and I knew it was going to be its last season. So all of a sudden I get a call from this gentleman named Jeff Gorson. He goes, hi, I'm a producer on Quantum Leap. I got your name from Randy Zisk. And I'm like, Randy, to my mind, like, I don't remember Randy Zisk. He goes, you know, would you like to come in for an interview? I said, yeah. And then my wife goes, you remember you interviewed with Randy like three years ago on a show called Midnight Call. I didn't have any experience. Somehow I got the interview. Randy called me and he said, look, we narrowed it down. It was between you and someone else. We went with the other person because he had a lot more experience, but I'm going to hold on to your resume. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. And sure enough, <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. Jeff and Randy were friends. Jeff must have asked Randy, I'm looking for an editor. Randy recommended me. So I met with Don and interviewed. And I came in right at the beginning of the electronic stage. So I really didn't have film experience. And they were debating whether to cut on film or go electronic. And I'm like, in the back of my mind, if they go to film, I'm screwed. If they go to film, I'm screwed, you know? <laughs> so Don liked me for, you know, I got the interview. He liked me and they decided to go electronic. Thank goodness. And because they always say getting your second job is the hardest because you kind of hope to get bumped up on the show you're working on, which I kind of did on tour of duty. But this was my first real interview. And I just I connected with Don and it just worked out, did the final two seasons. And, uh, you know, I had a blast. So and it was, again, like a show I loved, and I'm sure that came through in the interview because, you know, I said, you know, this is one of my favorite shows on TV. I loved it. Da, 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 whatever, you know, whatever I said. And it just worked out. And um John Kozlowski was one of the other editors. He had been there a couple of seasons already. So he kind of took me under his wing and showed me kind of like, yeah, here's the little tricks of the show. Here's what we do. And I said, okay, great. And I hired a wonderful assistant who had a good visual effects background because the, like, the system we were working on back then was our room was filled with equipment. There was just so much back in that day. So uh, he was really good at doing that. And I just, you know, I did two seasons on that. And that's where I met Tommy. And actually, my uh, to backtrack a little, when I got the job on Quantum, uh, a very dear friend of ours, Audrey, said, I have a good friend who directs a bunch of those named Joe Napolitano. Joe was my first director. My first episode, Joe directed. 
Joe sadly passed away five half years ago, but Joe was dating Elizabeth. My wife became like sisters. Joe, we became super close through them. You know, met Tommy, John DiAquino. I just saw John the other day. I saw Tommy last Saturday. We had dinner. Uh, Tommy and I are like brothers. Joe and I are like brothers. John and I are like brothers. Uh, Joe's wife, Elizabeth, calls me her second husband. I mean, we just, it was this really cool, true bond that, you know, came to be. And then Tommy, you know, when Quantum ended, Tommy went on to Sequest and he brought me on there. So a lot of good came out of that show, which was really cool. And, you know, to still be friends today with these people of almost 30 years. Yeah, I feel like the only director that might have done more quantum than Joe would be James Whitmore Jr. Yes. Like they seem and to a be bunch the of James too. Ones. Yes. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the production of the show in the sense that uh, this, you had mentioned that you were doing everything in a digital environment, but quantum was shot on 35 millimeter, right. was it not? So what was the process like to get the dailies to you and going from that film and then stepping it into say a digital format that then you worked with? Is that how it worked? Back then, we were on a system called Laser Edit. So it was actually editing off of Laser Discs. So the film would go to lab, it would get transferred, then they take that transfer, and they would put it on a disc. But, you know, uh, each side, we had, if I remember, five dual-sided players in our room. Each side held about a half hour of material. So, So you'd have, you know, one disc that had roughly about an hour's worth of material. And you could put five discs in at a time. So you back then, it was so different than it is today. You had these logs, so you knew which disc to do. You know, that disc would go to my assistant. My assistant then would load that into the system. Um, and it was not to, to bore people or get technical. It was a linear editing system. And I think that has affected the way I cut today, but for me in a good way. So difference between linear and nonlinear was... Uh, when I would cut a scene, I would take those laser discs and I would lay my cuts down onto a three-quarter tape. Okay. But I had to keep a log because I couldn't necessarily cut sequentially. They don't shoot sequentially. So like, let's say scene 32 was first. All right, I'm cutting scene 32. I'm starting at hour one. I had to go cut by cut. I had to make sure my edits were how I liked it, at least for me, because you couldn't go back and trim. If I wanted to on a linear system, I would have to take that three-quarter, lay it down to another three-quarter, make my trims in there. So I think that's the way I cut today because now everything is non-linear where I literally, as soon as I'm done cutting a scene, it's kind of, I don't go back through it again and make changes because I've done it edit by edit. That's just the way I worked. I think it's ingrained in me. So back then it just took a little longer. You would cut scenes and you'd have a log and write, you know, scene 32 started at one hour. My next scene was scene 17 that started at 102.34. Then eventually, once I finished cutting the scene, I would look at my log and go, okay, here's scene one, put my three-quarter tape in, punch in the numbers. It would lay it down to another three-quarter and I would have to build the show. So I almost had to do it twice. I would, you know, I would cut it, but then I would have to lay it down so we could watch it in order. So you're talking how many generations then? On three quarter, it would go down, but then we would uh, put it onto laser disc. So at least the generation looked a lot better for screening purposes. But yeah, it did it did get degraded a little bit if you're going from you know a three quarter down to a three quarter down to a three quarter down to a three quarter. And, and but that was just the nature of the systems. Like I said, they had like ten back then. The first four series I worked on was a different editing system, and then Avid took over. And I've been on Avid 20 years or something, I think. And, you know, 
now it's all digital. So, uh, and even up till about, I'm trying to remember the last show I worked on, you know, there were numerous shows that were shot on film and it would, whatever format you were working in, it would get, it would go to the lab, transfer the film and put into whatever format you needed for your system. Now everything's shot digitally. You know, they send the card, <laughs> my assistant gets it, downloads it, I get the material. And thus, why I believe in my mind, and I think others feel that way too, is why we're getting so much more footage than we used to get. Because before, you know, a uh, MAGA film was 10 minutes. And I remember uh, when I was working on X-Files and uh, I fell in the rotation of the producer director, Kim Manners, brilliant, brilliant director. Sadly, he passed away 10 years ago. And I remember they filmed in Vancouver. And I remember he looked in the camera one day and he goes, hey, Michael, sorry, you're getting a little over an hour's worth of film today. I'm like, no problem. Today, it's like, oh, we only got four hours? Great. <laughs> because it's yeah. digital. You're not burning film. So all of a sudden, it's like, do another take, do another take, do another take, do another take. You're like, oh, my God. Now we're getting before maybe two takes per setup. Like, you know, I was explaining to like a master, a close-up. Now you're like, oh, I got 11 masters. And I got six, you know, close-ups. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. But that's just the, the nature of the beast today. So it, it has changed, but it, a lot of it for the better. It, you know, you can work a lot faster and do a lot more electronically than you could back in the day. It just seems like it, it's probably a lot more versatile today when, especially in a nonlinear system, you can build your timeline and then fill in the black holes just electronically and you know exactly how much space you have to fill and all that. But Exactly. But let's, let's go back to those days because um, I think it would be interesting for um, listeners to hear from your perspective um, what a typical episode shoot was like. We've already spoken to Tommy multiple times and we've spoken to Chris Rupenthal about his time on the show, especially when uh, we did the episode Southern Comforts because he wrote that one as well. So he gave us sort of an overview of the production process from beginning to end. I'd like to get from the editor's point of view, um, what the timeline for a typical show was like for you and where you sort of fit into that final mix. Yeah, sure. Um, usually there's three teams of editors on a one hour drama. So, you know, usually you're roughly doing every third show. So you may do, you know, episode one, four, seven, ten, so forth. So you'll get the script and you'll read it. And a lot of shows now, they want the editors in, which I think is great, what's called the tone meeting. So I will come to the tone meeting, and it's usually the writer, the executive producer, a couple department heads, the director, and myself. And the writer is going over the tone of the scene with the director, who's you know already read the script, but also gives me a little insight. So it could be like, let's say there's a big party scene, but... We want to focus on Bill and Bill, he's not happy to be there. So we got to really play, you know, Bill should not be having a good time. So make sure that comes across. So I'm like, oh, okay, glad to know that, you know, so forth. So I will kind of get a feel of, of hearing the writer talking about the tone of their episode. Then once they start shooting an episode, I think I mentioned usually one hour television dramas are eight day shoots. If it's a streaming service, like Orange is the New Black was 10 days because it's longer. You go up to, I think it was 59 minutes for a streaming show and there's no commercial. So it's one continuous piece, which is nice. Network shows, it's like five or six acts because you're breaking for commercials. So it, let's say we'll make it easy. They start shooting on a Monday. I'm going to get that material that they shot on a Monday. I'm going to get it the next day on Tuesday and it's called dailies. 
And shows are not shot in order. It depends on locations, cast, and so forth. So I will know the shooting schedule. I know what I'm getting per day. So on the first day, I could get like scenes three, 17, you know, 28 and 42. Uh, and my assistant will get that material. He'll put the dailies together. Most setups are shot with at least two cameras, you know, and sometimes there's more cameras. Like if I'm doing a big action sequence, they may be running four or five cameras. If it's a big stunt, I've had up to 12 cameras. And if they're shooting, you know, multiple cameras, my assistant will, what's called group those takes together. So on my screen, while it may look like just one, uh, they're little squares, one square of footage. If there's a GRP next to it, I know it's grouped. So I can kind of like go through it and see, but it's always synced up. So I'm like, I know I'm always in sync. So if I want to cut to another angle, it's, it's right there. And then I'll just decide which scene I want to cut. You know, I don't necessarily have to start with the first one. I'll decide, right, I'm going to start with whatever scene and cut that. And depending on how much footage you get per day, you hope to have what you've gotten in that day cut, but you may not. But I know that, you know, what they shoot on Tuesday, I'll get Wednesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They shoot after eight days. Uh, I'll get my dailies on the next day. And then I have like four, you know, four days after my last day of dailies to put my cut together. So I just, I have to manage my own time. Like if I know I have, like I just finished on SEAL team and I know they're going to have big battles every episode. So I don't like starting a battle scene till the beginning of a day. Me, I want to get it done in a day. I don't want to like, ah, I'm going to start this at five o'clock and finish it tomorrow. I'm like battle scenes. I want to, I like to get in there and do it. Uh, the goal is within those 12 days, not only get my cut done, get all the picture cuts done, but then you've got to do, like I mentioned, a bunch of sound work and a bunch of music. Even though it's temp, it better be close to real. So just jump into like SEAL team. When they were firing their weapons, they had blanks in there and they were full loads and it was loud, but they actually needed to sound like suppressed fire because they had silencers. So we had to strip all that sound out. And then my assistant would put in temp sound of what the gunshot should sound like. So that's that's a lot of work. It's a lot of time yeah. consuming. You yeah, know, but and, don't they have sound editors that finish that all for you? You know, don't send me. <laughs> yes, they do. But and that happens once the show is locked. But we have to present that cut, you know, and, and that's where the music comes in and like visual effects um, before you could kind of get away doing something down and dirty. You know, when Al would come in the door, you know, we it wasn't as good as you see it, obviously, in the final. We would kind of rough it. Now your rough cut better look pretty good. It's just what they're expecting. So it's it's a lot more detailed and we still have to get it done in the same amount of time. You know, that four days has not changed in 30 years. So when I was saying back on Quantum Leap and so forth, you know, like two hours would be a big day. Now you're getting four hours, sometimes more, but still have to get your cut down done in the same time. A lot of it is managing your time and actually having a really good assistant that's good with sound and music because I used to love doing it. I just don't have the time. Editors just don't have the time anymore because we're getting so much more footage that, you know, the hours of the days don't change. You still have the same amount of hours in the day. So that's kind of what the timeline is. And so once I do my cut. Then I work with the director for four days, producer for four days. Then it goes to the network. Then we get their notes. And in a perfect world, which rarely happens is as soon as the network is giving you their notes and you've locked the cut, 
you're pretty close to getting dailies on your next episode. But most of the time, a lot of times that doesn't happen because people are busy. So you're, you're juggling more than one episode. You know, I could be working with producers on one episode. Now I'm getting dailies on another episode. So I'm like, wow, I got to really now, how do I manage my time? Because I'm losing time cutting while I'm working with producers, but I still have to get my cut done in the same amount of time. It just depends on the nature of the show. Well, you had touched upon this um, very briefly. You were talking about um, the special effects and Quantum Leap had some distinct effects, um, not very special effects heavy, but Al being a hologram, walking through certain elements of the shoot. Uh, Were you involved in compositing any of those special effects shots? Like, how did that work? We would do, you know, we would tempt them out. You know, we would do a rough version of it. And back in that day, a lot of times it was, you know, it's evolved a lot more. So back then it would be like the director would yell freeze and the whatever the scene was, it, all the actors would freeze and Dean then would come into the shot and pretend to walk through a door and, you know, the director would yell action. And hopefully it didn't look like a jump cut, meaning like everyone moved. And, you know, we would create what would look like the door that he came through. You know, we had a rough version of it in our system. Of course, then we would send it to the visual effects house and they would clean it up, you know, and make it look a lot better. But a lot of that was, man, let's hope the actors did it. And my very final episode was the one where he leapt into Elvis. So we had we had the big dance. Everyone's dancing at the uh, restaurant. And all of a sudden, you know, James yells freeze. And you've got like 50 (laughs) extras freezing. Like, please don't move. Don't move. Dean walks in and had to get up on the counter and then yell action. You're like, oh, shit. But there's little things, you know, it has evolved. So like, oh, shoot, someone moved. You may be able to digitally fix that in today's world. But back then we just didn't have that technology. So you're really counting on like, guys, don't move, don't move, don't move. Yeah. Sometimes. And honestly, even sometimes Scott looked like he had a little bit of a jump cut when Dean came on set. So it was unavoidable to some extent. It was totally unavoidable. But um, now, even if it's not a visual effects show, I'm like, wow, I really love this shot, but the actor's head is in the wrong position. I'll steal his head from another take and composite it on there down and dirty and then talk to our visual effects guys like, Hey, can you make this a lot smooth? And they're like, yeah, yeah. Don't worry about it. Like, okay, good. Thank you. All right. If I can get back to maybe a broader question and this is the simplest way I can ask it. How did you make Al walk through stuff? Um, That was back in the day. You would do you, you most likely the camera was what's called locked down. So it's not moving. Okay. So it, it's set in place. So you'd shoot a shot of, whatever your background was, then you shoot a shot of Al walking a separate shot. And then you can kind of dissolve those two together, you know, roughly, and then they can composite that together. So the camera never, you know, didn't move, did move. They, you could program it back in the day. So the cameras would do the exact same move. So if you were like, if you were moving over to the background, then, then you're going to have the camera program. Now you can bring Al into the background and then you can composite it as he's walking forward it's kind of like in a in a simple way he's you know you do a little dissolve and put him you know through it gotcha so how did the blue screen come into play uh the you know it could be to create the background you may not have so you want to you know you have them in front of a blue screen like okay i need them to walk through this building we don't have that building so we'll get a a stock shot of the building or whatever or or they may digitally build that building and put that into the blue screen and that becomes your, you know, background, you know, bag. I'm trying to remember 30 years ago because, you know, today everything's so advanced. 
uh, you know, back 30 years ago, we, we didn't have the technology that we do have today. So, and some of that stuff, the simpler stuff that you were able to do visual effects back then still work today. It's just, there's a lot more you can do. But back then it was just really kind of, you know, having a set lockdown of a piece and then have Dean walk in another take. And then you would just kind of meld those two together. And since the camera was in the same position, you didn't see that jump. So that was a seamless transition. That's cool. Now, I know that you touched upon this um, at the beginning of the interview, but um, I'd really like to get your take on what made working on Quantum Leap different from other shows. Was it more cinematic? Was it more dynamic? What made Quantum Quantum? I, You know, in number one, there was no show like it on television. And I always said, like, this has got to be an actor's dream because – Every eight days or nine days, you're, you get to be a different character, you know, and Scott loved that. He just he loved what he did. And you could see that came across. Like I said, there was nothing like it on TV. Being a fan of the show, getting to work on it. And I think cinematically, yes, it, it was different because every episode locations were different. You know, they were always someplace that looked cool. So it, that's what I loved about it is like, God, and it, a lot of the stories were very powerful too. And I think that that really resonated with me when I started on season four. And I think that's kind of when they started, let's do it at convention. I don't know if other shows had had started conventions yet. So they were going to do a quantum leap convention. And they said, Hey, Michael, if we set up an edit bay in the hallway, would you give demonstrations? I'm like, okay. I, I didn't realize I was going to be like, Oh my God, I was there for like 10 hours and people <laughs> and like, Oh my God, because you could go into the convention. I didn't know where to go open up about how episodes meant something to them. And, you know, I'm like, you know, the Vietnam episode of Vietnam vet talk or the power of this medium you know, is, is amazing. So that's what I found like, wow, this is really cool. And there was no show that looked like it on television. There was no show that was written like it. And the, I know the writers loved it, but you got to write your own little genre. And, you know, uh, Sam and Al were the only two constants, you know, they had to be in the episodes, but here's what he's leaping into, you know, be it a woman, be it, you know, you know, a monkey or whatever. <laughs> we love, we love, we call that show Diaper Monkey on this, on this podcast. There you go. It's one of our perennial favorites. Right. It so resonated. And, you know, I've never worked on a show like that. I know they're, they're going to be doing a reboot. It'll be interesting to see what that's like. Uh, but back in the mid nineties, it was such a unique show. And, like it was just so much fun because you'd get your script and like, okay, what's he leaping into today? You know, what's my episode going to be about? Oh, that's pretty cool. And I just, uh, I, I had a blast doing it. You worked on 14 shows in total over the fourth and the fifth season, if IMDb is correct. It seemed like everything from Play Ball, which is right in the beginning of season four, to Memphis Melody, which was the one right before Mirror Image. Do you have any episode that stands out as a favorite or favorites? Uh, you'll remember the title, but I won't. It was the KKK one. Justice. And Jimmy Whitmore directed that, if I remember. And, you know, I just remember how powerful that episode was. And I also, I remember getting a call because, you know, I, like I said, I get the material the day after. So I knew they were shooting the, this big stunt where they were blowing up. I think it was the church or the house, right? 
Right, right. There's a church. Michael, just as you know, it is really intense. And Diamond Farnsworth was Scott's double. He goes, you'll see, he almost got nailed. It, we're looking at the daily. I think the explosion was a lot bigger than they expected it to be. And it did blow Diamond back. But it, that was, it, you know, A number one, that was just such a spectacular stunt. But I remember that was just a very, very powerful one to me. And then there was also another one where, and you'll remember that title, uh, Jennifer Aniston was in it. It was one of her early roles. We're left into a, the, Tommy wrote it. Uh, he was helping a, a Vietnam vet. All right. The KKK one was Justice. And the one you're talking about now is called Nowhere to Run. Thank you. Thank and you. And that had Michael Boatman in it, I believe. Yes, Michael Boatman. He was great. He was great. And again, I'm like, wow, these are just absolutely powerful moments, you know, being a grand Tommy's such, you know, uh, a beautiful writer. And I always tell him that I go, you know, you write from your soul, you know, there's something that he, that he brings across. Uh, and I was always, you know, thrilled to get, you know, one of his scripts. And now, like I said, we're like brothers. So it's just, you know, uh, reflecting back. And I think Tommy would agree, even though it was early on in my career, it was, it's really one of my favorite experiences I've had. You know, and to start off that way, because you never know, you never know when you get on a show what it's going to be like, you know, you hope everyone's cool, you hope it's fun. A lot of times they are, a lot of times it's not. I loved it, you know, and I was bummed that it ended. So we all are. Um, but I, let me let me go to the other side of that question, because there's another side to that coin. Uh, a lot of times in TV, especially because it's so fast paced, you hear the term, well, fix it in post. Yeah. Were there any episodes that were just complete disasters that you had to work overtime to salvage? Gosh, I'm trying to remember in that day. Uh, well, there was an injury. It, it was, and you'll remember the title. It was Scott was a pilot and they were, they were filming it on the Grumman Goose. And it was an airplane. Don had done a show called Kill the Gold Monkey. Right. That was uh, the Bermuda Triangle episode. Thank you. And so they did a mock-up. They used the same plane. They did a mock-up of the Grumman Goose. And I remember on a Friday, they were shooting coverage inside the cockpit and it was pretty small. They had it on what's called gimbal so they can move it. So it made it look like it was flying. And then again, your blue screen. So blue screen was outside the windows. So we could put in clouds and, you know, to give, give the feel like you were really flying when it, you know, actually, obviously they were filming, they weren't flying. So I remember on a Friday, they were shooting uh, Scott, I think, was in the co-pilot seat and whoever the actor was in the pilot seat. And they were only shooting. They only had enough time on that day to get one side of coverage. They were going to pick it up on Monday. And you're like, oh, God, I ma- I just knew matching. I just happened to be on the set that day for some reason. I remember Scott at the end of the day, just looking at me and goes, good luck. <laughs> and sure enough, on Monday, they shot the other. And then I get the material. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, because. There was a lot of matching, you know, for an actor, you want everything to match. You want it best you can. There's there's an expression, part of the language, they go, some producer, go, ah, matching is for pussies. Don't worry about it. And you're like, <laughs> well, I do have to worry about it, you know, and, and, and you know, I know I'm I'll di- digressing a little bit. They always say like smoking scenes, eating scenes are tough. Dean and his cigar, he always matched, meaning every take, he would take a puff at the exact same line, whatever it was. So you always knew like, oh my God, what a professional. And that's a lot of times where you really see it when the editor gets all this material and you start looking at different takes, you're like, oh my God, every line at the same point, he's, this actor's doing something different. How do I make this work? How 
I get it to match. And I remember that just being the biggest challenge because it was like, it should have been a simple scene of two people talking, but since they couldn't shoot it on the same day, whoever the actor, I'm sure the pie the, didn't remember exactly where his hands were or whatever. You're like, Oh God, how do I, you know, what do I do? And you have to let it go and you hope no one sees it. You know, like if I can get that by somebody and I won't say anything. And I know there's one exact, I just worked with John Wells for four seasons. You couldn't get anything by him. It was like, he'd like, Hey, Michael, what was that? I'm like, ah, oh, damn it. You saw it, huh? And no one else saw it, but John just <laughs> had that eye. Like, all right, all right. That was the biggest challenge where you just think like, ah, two people talking. It should be a simple scene to cut together. All of a sudden you're like, it took me, from what I remember, a long time just to get that, to smooth it out, to make it work, to get matching, whatever it was. And just with, you know, the, the, the thing on the gimbals and all that, it was just, yeah, I just remember that being a, a challenging episode to cut together. Yeah, it's funny uh, that you mentioned the matching because that does really, if if you look at the background and you're nerds like we all are, one episode in, in particular, I don't think you worked on, it was called The Plays the Thing, took place in a nightclub. And um, there is a shot of Sam talking to someone in a in a booth, like at a table. And in one angle, when you have, I guess, Sam in the shot, they have a lava lamp in it that's just not warm enough yet. And then when they cut back to the other end of the conversation, the lava lamp is bubbling away. And it just takes me out of the scene every time. So that matching is really important. And in today's world, we can digitally fix that lava lamp. They would literally like, okay, you know, hey guys, I cut this scene together. You can see the lava lamp isn't matched. And they're like, okay, we'll take care of it. Back then, we just didn't have that technology. So it helps sometimes in, you know, when I'm cutting like things like that, like when I'm cutting a certain, even if it's not a heavy visual effects show, like SEAL team, you wouldn't think of visual effects. They're in Afghanistan and obviously they're shooting out in the valley. So we got to remove, you know, buildings and so forth. But now sometimes like there's something back there that's bugging me, but I'm going to mark it so we know we can take it out. Back in that day, something like the lava lamp would have drove me crazy. And I know I'm sure. as an editor, you just got to go, like, I got to go with performance. I can't worry because the lava lamp isn't working. And it's probably not stuff you think about on the set. You know, like, oh, yeah, we'll have the lava lamp. Oh, yeah, but it needs to, you need to warm it up two hours before you start shooting. Hmm. Well, speaking of being on set, you said that for the Bermuda Triangle episode, uh, it's escaping me the name of it, but um, that you were there that day. Did you frequently or often get to go to the set? And what was what was the set like? What was the work environment on Quantum Lake? It was actually very cool. It it just depended on the show and where where our location was. Uh, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a cool a cool set story. It was they were filming final episode and I, I i wasn't cutting that one but i was still working so and it was like the they were getting ready to do the last shot so i just wanted to go down the set and see and back in the day which doesn't happen now they would let some fans come on to the set as long as they were very respectful and quiet so i just was standing next to the script supervisor and what the script supervisor does is they have the script they're making sure all the lines are correct they're writing down uh the takes the numbers and so forth and they're filming a scene and Al is talking about his sister. And I don't remember the real character, his sister's name, but whatever, I'll say Betty. It's Trudy. Okay, Trudy. But it wasn't scripted. It's Trudy. Okay, so I'll just say, let's say it was Betty. So Al says, you know, talking about Betty. And the fan taps me on the shoulder and goes, the name's not Betty. It's Trudy. I went, what? I'm like, 
uh, okay. So I go to the script supervisor. I go, listen, I have no idea, but this thing, it's Trudy. And Don will kill me. And Don wrote the episode. So, so the script supervisor goes and talks to the director. All right, let's get a take with Trudy. They do it. The next day, I bring it up. This was season five. I guess her name was only mentioned once in like season one. If that fan wasn't there, they would have never got it. I'm like, wow, what are just, I mean, and Don wrote the episode, you know, it's like, thank goodness that fan was there. I'm like, gee, wow, they got the, you know, they got the right take. So, um, the set, you know, it was fun. It's a lot of, you've been on set. Sometimes it's a lot of uh, hurry up and wait, you know, be quiet and so forth. But uh, when they're actually doing the filming, especially a show like that, it was just, it was a blast, you know, to seeing uh, Scott do his thing and, and Dean and he was great. I remember the first time I met they called me down to the set. They just wanted me to meet him. And they were, they were shooting him in front of a green screen and he had Ziggy and he had, you know, the cigar in his hand. And I just, you know, shook his hand. He took this cigar and, you know, hi, hi. And I was like, hi, this is cool. You know, I'm kind of living my dream here. And like I said, I could always cut to Dean. He always gave a reaction. He was always engaged in the scenes. There's a saying acting is reacting. Dean always, 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 you could cut. He was doing something. He was engaged, playing with Ziggy, cigar, whatever. To me, he was just such a consummate professional. It just made it, made it easy and a pleasure. Yeah. So the sets, I mean, uh, depending, you know, just depending on what scenes they were doing, the sets were fun. I mean, it was great. And like, you know, Scott was cool. And like, you know, the episode where he was in the diaper is the monkey, you know, and you cut into a lunch break and there he is in his diaper, just hanging out, having lunch with, you know, a robe on you. I still have this image in my mind. I was doing an episode that Scott directed. You'll know the title. It's where uh, he leapt back in time to the bank robbers. Promised land. Thank you. I was cutting promised land, which Scott directed. So, so he was coming to work with me one day and whatever episode they were filming, he was dressed as a woman. So he left in a woman. So I'm like, I'm sitting here with Scott sitting next to me, dressed as a woman, working on episodes while looking at him, you know, playing, you know, another character. It was just like kind of, <laughs> and to him, he was, you know, no big deal, but like, okay, like, who, where, you know, where else does this happen? I still have that image of him sitting over on my left shoulder and I turn around and there he is in his dress. I'm thinking he was probably filming Liberation at that point, maybe, the Women's Live episode. That is really cool. Like I said, that is still, I vividly remember that, you know? And you're just like, okay, I'm not going to laugh. He's totally comfortable. So. <laughs> well, as much as we we love to hear about, you know, tales from the set way back when, um, what are you working on these days? Uh, I just finished up on SEAL Team. It was uh, just finished before the holidays. So, you know, as we all, you know, I'm looking for the next gig. Uh, it just got picked up for six seasons, so waiting to find out when it uh, starts. But right before that, I had the really good fortune uh, for four years of working with John Wells. I did four seasons of Shameless and uh, his other series, Animal Kingdom. And talk about a consummate professional and hands down one of the best working environments I've ever worked in. John definitely has an editor's eye. So it was just a pleasure working with him because we spoke the same language. You know, a lot of times didn't even have to, we, I could complete a sentence, you know, it's like, Hey, I want to, I go, you want to cut to da, 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 da. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, great. <laughs> he always made everyone feel welcome. I've been on shows where execs like you're just there to push the buttons and they don't really care. Okay. John would come Hey, Michael, how was your weekend? You know, to my sister, 
Hey, Will, how was yours? You know, talk and we were, but he's a massive Dodger fan as I am. So we would talk, you know, Dodgers, whatnot. And then when we would watch the episodes, he just, he, he just had this laser focus eye and it was such a pleasure. And, you know, then both, both shows, you know, ended their run. So uh, I went on to seal team and like in the small world, Christopher Chulak, who's a producer director on seal team is John Wells best friend. So it's like every, you know, it's like everyone is that six degrees of separation of Kevin Bacon, whatever. So I love doing action shows. So SEAL Team for me was no pun intended. A ball. And uh, they really have that show down because they shoot that show in seven days uh, and it really should be eight. But they've got it down and they, you know, they get it done. You know, the the battle days will be, you know, the heavy days. You get a lot of footage, but wow, so much, so much fun. So I'm looking, you know, I'm looking for my next gig as, as we are in the nature of this business. So I'm enjoying a little bit of downtime. Take advantage of it. That's good. I mean, but you also have something to look forward to. We had mentioned it earlier in the in the interview, but uh, they did just announce that uh, Quantum Leap is going to be rebooted or continued or whatever NBC decides to do with it. Um, number one, do you think that they would tap any old editors to work on the series? I don't know. You know, I uh, I reached out to the head of post there, my name Richard Winnie, and just you know sent him my updated resume. And I said, Hey, I did, you know, I heard they're doing a quantum leap reboot. I worked on the final two seasons. He goes, Yeah, you know, I don't we don't know when that's going yet. Don't know if they have anyone, but you know, I'll, I'll send your resume over there. So I don't know anyone involved. You know, it's it's a it's obviously a brand new crew. Uh I would love to cut the pilot. And you know, if it happens, if not, you never know. They may have or the director may have somebody they want to use, but uh I'm curious to see uh, what direction they're gonna go. Well, yeah, as as a fan, what do you want to see? You know, it's interesting. I was talking like, what are they going to do? Because obviously it's not Sam and Al. You know, is Scott, are they, are they, is Scott even being any? Is it, is it, you know, is it his son? What or did, they, you know, because my wife goes, maybe it's his son. I go, he didn't have kids. I don't think, you know, I don't know. I would hope it would stay true to what the original show was. Each episode being something different and trying to write or wrong. And God knows in today's world, there's plenty of it. So I hope in that nature that they stay with you know, that, and, you know, we'll see. I mean, I feel, you know, if you're going to do something called Quantum Leap, and it was, like I said, such a unique show, and each episode was definitely a standalone episode, I do hope that they stay true to that. Yeah, well, we're all waiting with bated breath, at least just to see the pilot. We hope that we can see the pilot, even if it doesn't go to series, we'll have some new Quantum Leap. So, well, you've been really gracious with your time and very informative. Now, I think I've, I know a lot more about the way the shows came together, which for, you know, a tech guy or an old TV guy, it's, it's, it's always neat to hear about that kind of stuff. Is there any aspect of your time on Quantum Leap that you'd like to talk about that we haven't touched upon? I just, it just, I, I, I touched on it a little bit briefly. It was just the impact that that show had on people. Like when, like I said, they started doing the conventions and, you know, I don't know if they were doing show conventions before, so years four and five, they had me out in the hallway and I, and I was doing, you know, demonstrations. I'm like, I'm an editor. What do they want? But they asked thoughtful, thought out questions. I'm like, wow, this, you know what? This is really cool. I've never been on a show. That, I mean, Orange is a New Black had a different impact, I think, because there was, again, there was nothing like that on TV. And especially for the, the gay community, it was so big. And um, I remember how powerful that was and people really responded to that and i feel like for this show 
how some episodes touch people. And I'm like, wow, that's really powerful. And they wanted, you know, they felt like they could open up to you and talk to you. And it just felt very natural. They all felt they made me feel really comfortable. And the questions were great. You know, I'm like, oh, okay. I had a great time. You know, and that, like I said, it still resonates with me. And I still remember, you know, when I was at the editing system, I'd look and there was like, you know, I, like, oh my God, there's a whole slew of people. Just, I think they were, number one, fascinated just to see how a show was put together and see all the equipment. But, you know, I'm like, so, you know, some of this you're going to see on air and some of it you may not because, you know, we haven't fully, you know, some of it we may have to cut out, but they were totally engaged. Uh, and I, like I said, I still, uh, again, it, it's so vivid. And that was almost 30, you know, 30 years ago. So that to me really resonates when something like the power of television, especially in today's world where you've got so many options and so many different streaming services to find something that still resonates with people. And here we are doing a podcast today, which is like, that's really cool. And Don actually, you know, segue, because at the beginning it was like, we're never going to leap into, you know, actual historical figures. Like, okay. And then the last season, Lee Harvey Oswald, you know, I did the Elvis one, but I'm like, and that was cool. Cause you know, I'm like, wow, Scott can really sing. Cause he pre, you know, I think there were two numbers in there, you know, he pre-recorded and sang. I'm like, he's got a really good voice and it was a fun episode. So that was like, that's a cool way to go out. <laughs> uh, and it, like I said, it's still, I think for some reason, this show just, it, it resonates. A lot of good came out of that, that, you know, lifetime friendships and, you know, great memories. I mean, I, I, I have nothing but good memories from that show. That's huge. That's great. Well, I'm happy to hear that it's still positively affecting your life to this day. And um, thank you for helping fans um, keep the legacy alive and uh, talking to us today and sharing uh, your time with us here on the Quantum Leap Podcast. Thank you for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. You, you had some editing challenges with an interview with an editor. How meta. <laughs> you should have got Michael Stern to help you out. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, well, I'm sure he would have. I'm sure he wouldn't have had an issue with it. Uh, but yeah, he was great, wasn't he? I just love Mike. Uh, he had so much enthusiasm and such great memories of the show. And it just came through in all the conversation that we had both on mic and off. He's a real genuine fan. And I'm so glad that we got to speak to him. Again, I feel like another feather in our cap for not just a guest star, but like like a behind the scenes look at yeah. the way the show came together and um, yeah. how things worked on set. And, you know, coming back to see the show from the beginning and then trying to put all this knowledge behind it saying, what were they doing this day? And what were they doing this day? And to me, that just enriches the, the viewing experience because I just get like a greater sense of depth and a greater immersion into my favorite show. So thank you so much, Michael, for uh, bringing all that great stuff to light. And thank you for your enthusiasm, your time and your fandom. It really is appreciated. Thank you. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Mike isn't the only one we've heard from. Uh, we also have some feedback. And surprise, surprise, guys, people have been talking to us about the reboot. We've had a couple of shows what? about the reboot what? now. There's a reboot. There's a reboot. And, you know, some fans have some things to say about said reboot. And let's see if you guys can figure out the theme 
of the feedback that I gathered for this episode. I thought it was apropos, but uh, our first bit of feedback comes in the form of a voicemail from a listener named Max. And here is the message that Max left us. Hello, uh, my name is Max. I've been a Quantum Leap fan since the start of season two. I am kind of concerned about this reboot because I am sorry, but I want Sam to come home. Uh, the ending always disturbed me, and I'll tell you uh, why. Leap Back, Donna Leaf. The Leap Back showed that Sam was married and loved Donna Leaf, and Donna loved him. Leaving him out leaping without coming home to his one true love really angers me and upsets me. So I would like in this reboot, even if Sam is not the leaper or if Sam isn't the observer, I would like Sam to come home to be with his family. Uh, thank you very much. Bye. It's fitting for this episode, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It certainly is. <laughs> mm, you cracked that code. Now you know why I picked it. Um, yeah. Max is pretty pretty strident about his feelings when it comes to Donna. He makes a good point. That's I've been making that point, too. Like, it really wasn't yeah. fair what they did with her character. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't know that I agree with him that I want to see Sam come home because that would contradict one of the greatest series finales of all time. But I can understand fans angry about that aspect of it. And I can understand fans that just don't like Mirror Image and they want to see Sam come home. They want to see a better resolution for the character. I don't happen to agree with that interpretation, but I, you know, I, I can't blame you. I mean, yeah, it would be nice to see him have some closure in that area. The thing for me is, yeah, I mean, like, like Chris, I think Mirror Image, fantastic series finale. I get why it's not necessarily that popular with everyone. And yes, there's definitely issues with uh, the way Donna was left. But this is a new TV show that's got a grip, a new audience straight away. And if they spend any time in the first episode trying to deal with a loose hanging plotline from 25 plus years ago, it's going to lose people's interest. So I kind of don't want them to deal with that, even if I agreed that it was all wrong and it should be undone. And this is, I get really surprised and confused, I guess, when I see people posting these uh, dream plot lines on Facebook about how, if I were writing the pilot, <laughs> this is how I'd spend an hour explaining away Mirror Image. It's interesting, <laughs> and maybe for the fans that would be fun, but it's that kind of thing's not going to get an audience. And I think Donna, who actually remembers Donna these days outside fandom, that's going to get me a lot of hate mail. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there are some shows that are doing um, reboots or continuations that heavily tie into the the continuity of what came before, like Cobra Kai or the Chucky TV mm-hmm. series, stuff like that. And they're really great. This is not what this show is doing. I would be very surprised if outside of it being Sam's project and the initial premise of trying to figure out what happened at this project or to Sam, uh, if we saw anything more than um, some lip service and Scott Bakula showing up at the end of the season, maybe. <laughs> Which is not, I, I think it's good that they want to try and do their own thing. And I think it'll be great to see what continuity they do throw in there. And I think there's probably going to be an open possibility for more in the future, should the show continue to series or to different seasons. But I don't think that the show is going to be like Cobra Kai or Chucky. I think it is a reboot in most senses. I think uh, it comes from me being a Doctor Who fan. Yes, 
shows, I, and I've not seen Cobra Kai, but I know shows like that can do it very well. But I was just burnt so badly in 1996 when Doctor Who comes back <laughs> and the first five minutes they explain all the dumbest lore that no one gave a shit about. <laughs> but we saw that the master always dresses for the occasion. <laughs> But that's fine. You know, if you get that's like well over an hour into it, if you've got to that point, fine. But the the opening monologue, like, oh yes, the, the Time Lords have thirteen lives. The Master used all of his. What? Who? What? If Quantum Leap went that way, and that's the thing, that's an extreme because that was a badly written bit of exposition. But it's uh, it's what every Doctor Who fan goes to when we hear about reboots that heavily reference the original series. We just think, God, not not Paul McGann all over again. Please. I don't think it should be absent of any continuity or references. Uh, no. Because, no, no, like, no, I, I don't like this idea of, like, you know, oh, well, that's done. It's over. We, we don't care anymore. You know, but I don't think it's going to be heavily tied into it and that they're going to, you know, be like, well, this is what happened with Donna and here's what's going on here or whatever. Though it would be very funny if the opening shot of the new show was, like, the, the control room, like, it lights up, and then you see, mm. like, Donna's skeleton sitting <laughs> <in the> chair, <laughs> And then they just, like, shove I'm it aside, and they're like, well, let's see what this thing's all about. They walk in, frying pan falls exactly. down. They watch the skeleton holding a frying pan, and they just kick it aside. <laughs> we just made max matter <laughs> no I'm, i don't mean to like dismiss anyone's feelings i like i feel the same way like i think like it was crappy what they did with their character and i think it'd be mm-hmm. nice if they had yeah. some sort of loose ends tied up and i think if they do that in the future that'll be great i just don't think it's going to be heavily tied into that at least not at this stage I don't think so either. I think um, while this will be a continuation of the universe, like Matt said, they're trying to grab a new audience and they're not going to be concerned with plot minutia from a 30-year-old show um, because that's not what this is. It's funny that you bring up like Cobra Kai. Um, I don't know that I've seen any of the Chucky stuff uh, since Child's Play, to be honest with you. So I don't know Chucky lore, but – Oh, it's deep in that lore. But I mean Cobra (laughs) Kai – It's complicated. Cobra Kai the series (laughs) exists – as an exercise in nostalgia. That's the only reason that it's on the air because they went with um, like a silly joke of how Ralph Macchio is actually the bad guy in that movie and that uh, the kid who plays Johnny was was just a hapless victim of, of all of uh, whatever. Anyway, it's like they got enough fan service out of that to do like what I think everybody thought was going to be a jokey series. And then the series became a runaway smash. Wait. That, is is that what that's about? That that was like that was an episode of How I Met Your Mother. Yeah, exactly. It, it, did they actually make a whole? Yeah, it's that <laughs> they do it, but they play it completely seriously. Like it's it's just completely in earnest, and they they do a great job. I love Cobra Kai, and I don't even I'm not even that tied to Karate Kid. I don't think Karate Kid's that great of a movie, to be honest. <laughs> but I love Cobra Kai, and I think they they took that premise and really built on it well. And they're telling a different kind of story because it's not about. Ralph Macchio and, and Mr. Miyagi and all that stuff. Like it's it's kind of uh, Johnny's story and then ties into Daniel's story as well. Um, but I don't think that's what Quantum Leap is doing. It'd be great if they were, but clearly that's not. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just think that you're talking apples and oranges when it comes to that, and I I, I don't think that this is the vibe that a new Quantum Leap is going for or should go for. I think it needs to be an in-universe continuation. If they have any kind of fan service, I just want them to be nods that you and I and Matt and Max will get. Yeah. But I don't want the show to hinge around shit like that. 
<laughs> if they just started it and they're like, yeah, Sam just leapt home. I'd be like, all right, cool. Leave him home. Like, <laughs> I ain't tied to that finale. Leave Sam home. Whatever. That'd be great. I would be so angry. <laughs> but if they don't even get into it or if Sam just like does a cameo, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to just like lower expectations as far as that's concerned and just try and enjoy the show for what it is as its own entity to begin with yeah. and, and see how it holds up. That's how I want to approach it as I well. I think that would be best. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we also got some feedback regarding the impending reboot from a YouTube viewer. Uh, Albie's been going nuts over on YouTube and uh, he's been posting old episodes of the podcast, old interviews yeah, that great we've job, done. Albie. Yeah, he's really yeah. just amped up the content there. Like, it's 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 nuts what's going on and uh as of now all of our shows are going up there as well so a listener or i guess a viewer in this case named mitsukara saw the episode that we did about the reboot and they write guys let's do the let's do the round robin like we usually do i'll start cautiously optimistic about this new show the old show wasn't perfect but it was pretty cool and had some legitimately progressive moments that were really good for 90s tv standards i hope this new show lives up to that given we have a non-binary character i'd be curious to see if there's an episode confronting anti-trans bigotry i also am hopeful about this cast they seem like a good bunch I've also been thinking about Sam on this show, since Scott Bakula might be appearing. There's a lot of ways they could do that. He could have just a small guest spot, or maybe the new project team searching for him will be a central part of the plot. He might still never return home, but as some sort of season finale type stuff, maybe Ben will try to save Sam at some point, to help Sam get home when he never would have before, or to survive when he's going to die on some other leap. Like it's Sam's turn to be saved in a leap. It could also be a passing of the torch. That would then become about getting Ben home now that Sam's fate is resolved. I hope they mention Donna in some capacity. It would be a bummer to forget about her after the leap back. She seemed really, really dedicated to waiting for Sam, and it's a huge part of why it's so sad for him not to come home. I don't think I have the drive to actually write a fanfic for QL, but if I did, I like the idea of Donna becoming a leaper sometime after Mirror Image and finding Sam, helping people together. Some kind of Sam-Donna reunion could be really cool, I think, whether or not Sam ever actually returns home. I just hope they don't forget Donna. She deserves a better ending. The Donna lovers Everything are coming all comes out together. of the woodwork. Mm. They're loving Donna. Yeah. I just like Sam and Donna leaping together. Can Donna leap with her frying pan, though? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> she can find one. She always knows where the frying pan is. Maybe if she, she took that into the accelerator chamber with her and then it leaps into various different household <laughs> objects. Like this week it's a spatula. <laughs> but Sam knows what it really is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Keep him in line. <laughs> Next week it's just a wooden spoon. He'll be all right. You know what I kind of like as an idea is um, Sam continuing his leaps but seeing the people in his life every once in a while. Like, just every once in a while, he visits Donna or Al or whoever, his family, just throughout time. Just checking in. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's another thing, like another possibility, in the sense that I know people are bummed that Dr. Sam Beckett never returned home, but it doesn't say he never saw anybody he loved ever again. Like, if he's leaping himself, he could see them every day if he wants to. It, maybe he's seeing them from afar. Maybe he's not interacting with them. But it doesn't mean that he's completely cut off from everything and everybody he's ever loved. It just means that he's not back at the project. That's all it means. Yeah, I guess that's kind of a, a nice way to think about it. Writes letters to everyone, maybe. Leaves them through time. Yeah. <laughs> kind of nice. Could be. I mean, we don't know. All we know is that he never went back to the project. Yeah, is that kind of 
heartbreaking in a way, but it doesn't have to be. And I love this idea of, you know, him finding Donna and them leaping together. I don't know how they – does he sneak her into the project at night while nobody's looking and she goes into the accelerator chamber? It's fun. They find each other through time. <laughs> she go, she jumps in and leaps and then like star-crossed lovers, they're reunited and uh, – Aww. And then they touch hands and then they leap together like he did with uh, Leah. And she knew it was Sam because he was eating his magic cheeseburger. Yeah, she's like, no one else eats a cheeseburger <laughs> like that. Hold the tomatoes. And he's like, no one else holds a frying pan like that. I think that's Donna. <laughs> <laughs> Who takes their tomatoes off cheeseburgers? I don't know. He, oh. he took the tomatoes off, but he had extra onion. Ew, that's like, a devilish combination. That really just proves to me that Sam knows how to ruin a good cheeseburger. That's all that proves to me. <laughs> it tells me stay far away from this man. He's going to have like gushy breath after that. Gross. <laughs> that was an opportunity missed. Do you remember, guys? The first time, the, the first podcast we did, and I was so worried I wasn't going to be interesting that I showed up with Jello and onion <gasps> to eat as like a gimmick. I should have had the cheeseburger ready and waiting. Oh my god! I could have eaten it during this podcast. That would be your shtick then. You would be Damn. the onion guy. Oh, Matt's eating onions <laughs> onion again. <guy>? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even realize this is like a through line. Sam's some sort of onion fiend. Loves onions. Well, the the leap he eats onions in. Uh, Pool Hall Blues. That's right. You've been eating onions. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what Albie would have. Albie has a whole convoluted theory on this, I'm sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> well, that is a very interesting email. Yeah, Mitsukara also mentioned they're like um, that they'd be curious if there's an episode in the new show confronting anti-trans bigotry. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely, yes. there will be. Oh, there has um, to be. We even saw that that one of the actors tagged, and I don't think this will be part of the, the pilot episode, but one of the actors tagged in one of those uh, Instagram pictures is a trans actress. So I feel like very much they're going to get into that kind of thing and things that they wouldn't have been able to uh, do in the old series or that weren't issues back then. You know, there's some like more modern issues as well. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't a topic back then. Yeah, they, well, trans bigotry was definitely uh, an it's, issue back then, but it wasn't yeah. uh, you just didn't talk about it as much uh, on yes. TV. There was still like yeah. certain th- like them having a gay episode was a big deal. Like that was controversial. Yeah. So going into trans stuff, like they just wouldn't yeah. They just wouldn't have. It was supposedly controversial when he leapt into Jesse in, in season one. So it's just like oh, baby yeah. steps, guys. It'll be controversial now. Whatever they cover, people are like, even now they're saying like because a non-binary character exists in it. Like, oh, this is woke stuff. This is a PC crap. You know, like, <laughs> so I think like absolutely like. Buckle it, up. You're not going to like this series. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fine. It's fine. If that's what's worrying you. Yeah, I think they'll get into that. I think they'll get into AIDS stuff. I think there's going to be a 9-11 episode for sure. Um, I think they're specifically going to talk about um, Asian discrimination as well, given that uh, Ben's Asian. So I think absolutely they'll talk about that stuff. Assuming this goes to series. I think it will. I'm going to be optimistic. I think it will. I think for sure it will. I think they already have it planned out. I think it's, yeah, I think it's a done deal. Look at how happy that cast look in the photo that, that's been doing the rounds. That looks like a cast that should be working together for years. They're so stinking cute. That whole <laughs> cast together, they're just smiling in the rain. It looks like a really crappy night, but they look so happy together. 
It's like these these four kids and Ernie Hudson being like, <laughs> yeah, I'm too old for this shit, but I'll stand next to you. I posted that on uh, Twitter, and then like everyone's like, is that Ernie Hudson? <laughs> is that Ernie Hudson doing that? One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> it's so funny. I guess he must he has an Instagram, but. I, just imagining him using Instagram, I don't know. Someone must run his for him or something. Yeah, his his Instagram, it's one of those ones that's it's Ernie Hudson official. Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely someone runs it for him. Yeah, and it's all just, it's full of um, red carpet pictures. Very, very well picked out red carpet pictures. No, I don't know. I think, like, Ernie Hudson's kind of, like, hip with it, what's going on, like, modern stuff. Because, like, there's a... There's a uh, an unofficial uh, Pokemon guide video and he's there with his son because his son was really into Pokemon and he's right there like he's like yeah the Pokemon thing that craze pretty cool so I think he was like oh, cool just jumping cool. into <laughs> whatever was the cool thing it's now official Ernie Hudson is, is hipper than I am so go figure yeah <laughs> <laughs> he's like what's going on on Insta who's <laughs> tagging me Chris Ernie Hudson was a Ghostbuster, and you had any doubts that he might be cooler than you. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry, Chris. He was the reluctant Ghostbuster. He didn't care. You got burned, man. You'd believe anything if there was a paycheck. <laughs> Ernie Hudson is, like, one of the coolest dudes. I've never seen him not cool in anything. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing him in the show. I mean, the fact that they have him being the project administrator and dealing, you know, maybe playing some of the hardball with the government. I I, I can't wait to see mm. it. I can't wait to see what they do with him and what yeah. he does. It's going to be so good. I hope. Yes. Good feedback, guys. Yeah. And thanks, Mitsukara, by the way. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry, Sam and Donna leaping together. Now it's all I can see. It's going to be a spinoff series. Maybe it'll be like Webisodes, the Sam and Donna Chronicles. Do they still do webisodes? <laughs> that could work really well. I like that. If you out there want to be like Max or Mitsukara, there are many ways that you can reach us here on the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can get us by phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at quantum leap pod and now you can even comment on our youtube channel at youtube.com slash the quantum leap podcast and you can always go that extra mile and support us on patreon at patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast just remember we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the quantum leap podcast and speaking of upcoming episodes matt what are we doing next well, next we're returning to the book range uh, with Ashley McConnell's third entry into the series and the third entry overall, The Wall. The Wall. Very exciting stuff. Shall I read the blurb? Please do. Do please it, do. man. Dramatic reading of the back cover blurb. When you're up against the wall, leap before you look, dot, dot, dot. Germany, 1961, a rigid world of dangerous politics and strife. The Berlin Wall is under construction, and Dr. Sam Beckett has leaped into the life of a six-year-old girl. As Missy, he feels small and helpless. What can a child do to alter the fate of Germany and the world? Sam is about to find out when he leaps again into the adult Missy on the day the wall comes tumbling down when the walls come tumbling down when the uh oh copyright infringement i don't think those lyrics are written on the back <laughs> tell it to john cougar mellencamp i think you took some creative license with that one he did say dramatic reading <laughs> <laughs> creative license dramatic reading now, i'm 
I barely remember anything about this book, so I'm really looking forward to reading it. I have them stacked on my desk like what's coming next, and I've been staring over at the cover. Sam is so intense on the cover of this book. I love it. Mm. I remember it being kind of a heavier one, so looking forward yeah. to, to revisiting that. Steely-gazed Sam. So sexy. This was the, the first and last of the Quantum Leap books that I read back in the 90s. Oh, right. This is the one where you're like, <laughs> the wall. <laughs> oh, I hate that. Well, we'll find out, won't we? It's completely naff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, that's what I said. I said it's it's naff. <laughs> it's naff. <laughs> it's, it's non-spiffing. It's pants. <laughs> pants. <laughs> Bollocks. Are you guys done? <laughs> no. <laughs> Hey guys, remember when we had that conversation about Teddy Boys and Smutty Smith? You remember that? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do. And you know what, guys? You might not think you're done, but you're done. Until next time, I've been Christopher DePolipis. <laughs> I've been Smutty Smith. <laughs> and I've been Matt Dale. Goodness. <laughs> and we'll see you next time, guys. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Morgan Felden, Charles Allen Gossard, and Ben Kirkham are the producers. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit Baronspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap podcast is a Baron Space production. Stop eating that box. <laughs> Cats know when you're working. Yeah. They're like, you're recording something? What's the noisiest thing in the room? This cardboard box <laughs> This cardboard box has been sat here for days. It suddenly looks tasty. I don't know if that is her true thing because Penelope almost never eats during the day. She's like a sundowner. She'd like go to eat her food at midnight. And I was doing a recording with Charles Allen Gossard yesterday. I was doing the old boy with him at my kitchen table because I didn't want to disturb Laura. She was sleeping. And guess who just sidles on up and starts eating her food? <laughs> it's eating time. <laughs> it's like, what? You never eat. What are you doing now? <laughs> Daddy's talking. Yeah, see, like, Ash would do that. Like, she'd always eat when I was recording. She still does it, but she has soft food now. But she, we, when she had crunchy food, like, she's like, oh, yeah. I know this is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> I got that that song stuck in my head, Scott Bakula by Sunspot. You guys know that one? <laughs> no, I have Quantum no, Leap. Get <laughs> that one's good too. Yeah, look it up. It's a song called Scott Bakula. <laughs> it's all about how he's such a sensitive, wonderful guy, and they'll never be Scott Bakula. <laughs> he played a quarter Bakula and necessary <laughs> roughness. <laughs> Oh my god, I have to post a link to that every time someone says, The new show won't be any good without Scott. Scott! Oh, I love it. Uh, never mind. I I'm opening a whole can of worms here, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you guys should look up that song, Scott Bakula. Okay. It's very funny. <laughs> we'll do. We'll do.
Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt about the music thing. I think you were asking Matt what the name of the song was. Oh yeah, Betcha by Golly Wow. What? <laughs> Betcha by Golly Wow. <laughs> it's like Sam when he's upset. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's him cursing. Betcha by Golly Wow. <laughs> All right, so I'll follow my lead on this one. Hey everyone! <coughs> oh, thanks, Matt. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I'm good. <coughs> Just getting over COVID, dude. I'm amazed I've held off that long. You okay? Better now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, all good. I thought uh, Scully was uh, coughing up a hairball. <laughs> Harsh. I've got a whole paragraph in Beyond the Mirror Image of different people talking about Terry Hatcher's boobs.